Hello everybody, thank you for coming by to another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story podcast stream thing. <laughs> I feel like I add new words to that all the time. Uh, today we will be continuing our tale of a 30-year Dungeons and Dragons campaign adventure. I felt I should clarify that there were years within the 30 years that weren't actively played, but I've been writing and working on it for 30 years. Hello, Bragg, Ashley, and Teresa. Good day, and everyone else out there. Um, so yeah, as normal, we'll do a brief recap of where we left off in the story. Um, we are dangerously close to getting this done. Uh, it's, it's, it's rushed up on me. I've talked about it for the last few episodes, but it has literally snuck up on me quicker than I expected. And I'm not sure we'll finish today, but if we don't finish this story today, it will definitely be finished next week. Which means we are one or two weeks away at most from new content. So, I, as I've mentioned before, very excited, while at the same time very nervous about hitting that point, you know? Because it'll be stuff that never was ever play-tested. It was just what was going to be play-tested had I not continued, right? Or had we continued playing the game. So I've known forever where it was going to go, so I'm going to continue the tale one way or another. But again, still uh, a little nervous, hoping it will come across as well, with it specifically not being, uh, being play-tested, if you will. So where we left off currently. So our heroes are on a quest to help out some sea elves who don't definitely know they're getting that help. Um, on Darsh's ship, he has Gipper the gnome and Nyla the princess of the sea elves who, against her and her father's will, the king of the sea elves, she was going to have to be sacrificed as well as several other elven females to a group of were-sharks that has been terrorizing them for several years. Our heroes are searching for a way to save her and the elves at the same time, while still avoiding the elves who are seeking Nyla, thinking that Gipper the gnome kidnapped her. Whether they really believe that or not is, is up in the air, but that's definitely what they said. So they went and they found a sea witch, who was a very ancient and evil naga. Naga, how do you pronounce that? Serpent Woman. And she made them a deal that if she, they returned with um, uh, from a sunken ship, go to a sunken ship and come back with a locket and compass of the captain of that ship. And she would tell them where they could find something that would help them defeat the were-sharks. Because the were-sharks have some form of control over a creature of massive size. Uh, titan underwater, basically. And it is named Euroclodon. Um, and it's massive. And it's an ancient beast that would never serve the sharks willingly, so they have to have some type of power on it. So they did what they were told, went and helped out and found that, and they got the uh, stuff from the Sea Witch, for the Sea Witch, and she told them that they needed a trident. That there was a magical trident that could help calm Euroclodon. That there's something that the sharks have that's giving them power over it. That would either need to be stopped, damaged, or taken back. And then the beast will be quite furious 
once it finally is free, they will need to use the trident to basically calm it down, to make it more peaceful, so it will hopefully not destroy the elves. And Darstopia and everywhere else along the ocean, right? It is a sea creature. It does not go on land, so it would be like a damage to the rest of the world. They were also told that this trident was in the treasure hoard of a great dragon turtle. So they had to go to the where the dragon turtle's area is, where it's, its territory. Before they went, they stopped by a small town, uh, well, good-sized town, actually, um, on the ocean where they restocked up supplies, and while there, had a run-in with one of the were-sharks, who, very, who got away after they did some damage to it. So it's very possible that the were-sharks now know at least approximately where they are or what's going on. I have a clue of something, basically. So, heroes continued on, made it to the dragon turtle's waters, and then left their ship using the magical amulet so that lets them breathe and move freely underwater, sank to the bottom of the ocean, and proceeded to move forward till they came to within the Dragon Turtles area, a large graveyard of ships that clearly were all put together by the turtle, the turtle known for destroying any ship that comes through its waters. As they began to make their way through this ship graveyard, creatures began coming out of the ships, carrion feeders, that average between three to four feet in size, known as sea spiders, although they're actually a form of crustacean, they look more like spiders. Big claws. They did fight a sea worm on the way to that. They defeated the sea worm. And then they came to the sea spiders. So that's where we left off, where the sea spiders started swarming out, if you will. Ah, yes, my creepy crab things, which were uh, my own designed creature from Dungeons Dragons. It's not something I took out of the book. So, Rockladon is also something created by myself. I try to uh, introduce a lot of my own custom stuff as well as with the uh, traditional D&D monsters. What's up, MT? What up? Well, glad to have you, sir. Glad to have you. So, yeah. That's where that's our recap, so uh, we'll get into that. So, as a reminder, the group that are currently under the water are four heroes. Dandy, Darsh, Mercy, and Artemis. As well as they brought... Um, let me see. Who else they got? They brought Rokar, Darsh's cousin, another Minotaur. And they also brought their mage, who for some reason... Mork. There it is. I was going to say Garrick, but that's their Minotaur cleric. Morg. Mark. Uh, so there's six of them that are under the water. Um, there's not a ton of spells that Mark can do underwater. It's probably very, very few, but still, not knowing what's all going to happen, it might be handy having a magic user, especially dealing with a magical creature like a dragon turtle. Because like a dragon, they have spells and such as well. So the sea spiders start to swarm out. And I say swarm... Uh, I'm not talking in the thousands. I mean, there are a lot. So probably about 20 to 30 at least start swarming out of the ships. Um, any more than that, and they'd end up feeding on themselves. There wouldn't be enough to live on down here. So they are uh, trash bugs, if you will. They 
live on the dead flesh of fish or whatever else the sea turtle might have let float down, half a whale, whatever the case may be, as well as probably bodies in the ships and things like that, as well as regular fish and things of that nature as well. Um, but they are uh, bottom feeders, if you will. Carrion feeders as well. So, while the things are pretty big, pretty nasty, um, they don't move super, super fast. Dragons can cast spells. Oh, yeah. Dragons are highly intelligent and magic users, very much so. Um, so, dragons themselves, certain dragons' colors are more likely to be spellcasters. Uh, as a good dragon's uh, silver is usually one of the more common ones to be the spellcaster. Silver are the more common ones to take some type of uh, humanoid form and live amongst other races as well. Um, when it comes to the black, to the evil dragons, uh, green, blue, and red are probably the more common. White uses some spells. Black, not as much, uh, at least in my experience. Uh, green are usually the the bigger spellcasters for the chromatic for the normal evil dragons. Was Darth affected by the fear of spiders or no? Since they aren't technically spiders. Interesting, interesting question. At the time, uh, the, he it, he wasn't negatively affected in his roles, um, but she played him like he was definitely creeped out, right? Because he doesn't know they're technically not spiders. He's not taking the time to count legs. It looks like. A spider, right? That's close enough for him. Um, so, you know, Darsh, luckily, Darsh's reaction to... There's, there's kind of two reactions to a bug, right? You got a bug in the house. There's the eek, oh God, a bug, and then hide. Or eek, there's a bug. Crush it, destroy it, smash it. Darsh falls into level two. He's more likely to go more, I wouldn't say berserk, uh, but more brazen in his attacks to try to kill the thing. So that it can't, you know, get him, if you will. You know what I mean? It's not one to cower in fear. Fear has uh, different effects on people, depending on their nature. So he's more likely to target something like that, because the quicker it's dead, the, le the less he has to worry about it. Um, sometimes to the point of recklessness, I should say. It's probably the best way to put that. So the way he's affected by fear is he will recklessly do whatever he takes. You know, he's the type of person who's like, okay, I burnt the whole house down. Why? There was a spider in there. You know what I mean? It's that recklessness to do whatever it takes to destroy that thing that freaks him out. Um, one thing we didn't really discuss back then, but I've often wondered, is if Artemis is afraid of heights and you jump in the ocean and you're sinking for 20 to 30 minutes, waiting to reach the bottom of the ocean, would there be a fear of heights involved? You're technically falling. You're buoyant. You know that there's ground way down there. I've often wondered if you could see how the how far away the, the ground was underwater, would that fear of heights still take over? Uh, it's not something I've... I, I have a fear of heights, but it's not something I've ever personally had to deal with. I've been on the water, deep water and such, but Never the point you could see down or it's crossed. It's been many, many years. So, Just something I, I, I considered. Could that affect somebody? So, where was I? Yes, over here. So, they're dealing with the spiders. So, uh, the first reaction is, let's try to get past them. See if we can get through there. 
Um, and again, they move at regular speed with just a little bit of buoyancy. So hopping will let them jump up pretty high. Um, in fact, Darsh can jump the highest, of course, because he's the physically strongest, can propel himself quite a distance. So as they're running through these things, they're jumping literally what would be 10 or 12 feet from boat to rock to whatever. And it's one of those things where as they're running, they're smashing and trying to knock them back. And again, I mentioned this last episode. For me, it was very much like that classic scene in the movies where you're in space and they're running down a hallway and all these little creatures are coming out and they're kicking them and knocking them, trying to get through that door at the end. And as they're swarming and more and more and we're coming out of vents and stuff, that's kind of what this was. As they're running through the ships, more and more start coming out of windows and through broken sides and such. Uh, and just start chasing them further and further. And you can imagine Darsh and Mercy are thwacking them as they go by. Artemis is in the middle just trying to run. And Dandy's got her hoop hack. And she's using it as not only a pole vault to jump and such. But also to push them away and knock them away from Artemis. Um, so for the first little while, combat was literally run. Um, and occasionally I'd be like, oh, one's close enough. Do you take a hit or do you run? And that's a decision they had to make. Do I attack it? potentially losing distance. But if I don't attack it, is it close enough that it might grab or hold one of us? So uh, there were several situations where they had to make that decision. Oh, Mork and uh, Rokar doing the same things, I should say. Mork and didn't have a whole lot of spells for use in this situation. So it's Darsh and Garrig. Mercy's normally in the back, but uh, not Garrig. Rokar, I'm sorry. Rokar's running in the back of this situation, and Mercy's a little bit more in the middle, closer to the casters. Um, so more often than not, they they chose to hit. Um, and even though those things are kind of large, they're not super powerful. Their their concern is in their numbers. So you know, a hit from Darsh or Rokar or Mercy will usually kill one. You know, Darsh just cuts them in half, and Mercy's Morning Star is just literally crushing them. Rokar's a an axe wielder, so he's with his axe. So uh, the three of them are easy to just cleave through these things when they get in range. It's when four, five, eight, ten of them get on top of you and all start grabbing you with their pincers and sawing away at your limbs or wherever they grab onto. Uh, and strong enough limbs to cut through metal. They could cut through your armor. It would take longer, but they could do it. They could feasibly break. Your, you know, grab a hold of your axe, snap the wooden handle, or bite the metal right off the top. So that was another concern. There were a couple of situations where the spiders got a grip on them, and there was like strength checks uh, for people like Darsh and Mercy and Rokar. Uh, when Dandy got snagged for her, it was more of a, I want to do an attack. So she had a, she had her hoop pack out and she had her dagger. So he grabbed her hoop pack, I want to stab it with the dagger, see if it'll let it go, kind of thing. Um, and for the two casters, Artemis and Morik, they would just get grabbed, and somebody else would usually have to save them. They had their own stabs, right? They're smacking at it with stabs, but it doesn't do a whole lot. Even Dandy's hoopack, Dandy does more damage than they do with their stabs. Um, but as they're running through, um, they start to gain some distance on the things. And the things seem relatively hesitant to leave the boat graveyard. And that's kind of what saved them. They they had to take out a, a good chunk of them while running, and they took some hits and some damage. They come out of there, and you know, like, especially the casters. I remember their robes were shredded around their arms and legs, and they had, you know, like 
cuts on them and Artemis had to heal them specifically because they didn't have armor on. Even Dandy has her leather armor on that she usually wears when they're hunting undead because it's to protect against the claws and teeth of undead, right? Her and Michael have that custom-designed hunter armor that is becoming very popular across Merge Worlds. Um, Michael designed it. Uh, it's coming very popular. Other hunters are using it or designs like it uh, to help protect against undead. So it has a high collar, supposed to protect you from like being bit on the neck, vampire concept, you know, things of that nature. It has gloves with grips on them and such. Um, Add some protection there. But it's not as good for weapons, of course. It's designed specifically for tooth claws and nails of, of undead. But as they finally get out of the ship's area, uh, the things stop kind of chasing them. It's like they don't want to go further into the dragon turtle's waters, which is very much what that is, right? They know they go too far, they don't have the protections of the ships, the dragon turtle could just swim down and with its mouth probably scoop up a mouthful of them, you know? It's very large. They usually are. So, takes them a little bit, but they manage to make it through, and they continue on their way. Um, It was fun, because I kept waiting for somebody to drop a weapon, and then I'd be like, you can go back for it? Hmm? <laughs> Nobody did. Nobody rolled a one that whole time. Very depressing for me as a DM. As a DM, I'm very much the Teresa of the group. I'm like, are you going to hurt yourself? Are you going to do something bad to yourself? I'm just saying. So they keep continue traveling on. Now they're being a little bit more careful, right? Are the things chasing them a little bit? They're keeping an eye out for stuff like that. What else might they come across? And they travel for a couple more hours. And uh, they're making good time. Uh, the ground in most areas is flat or just a little bit rocky. There's not a lot of areas that are uh, hard to traverse. Most, a lot of it is just sandy area and then rocky area. Eventually, though, they find what they're looking for, though not in the way that they had hoped. Dandy is the first one to notice it. Even underwater, sound carries. And, uh, even though an Artemis in them would normally have better hearing. But under the water, Danny's always been a little bit more perceptive than everyone else. Danny's kind of got that, mm, something's wrong. Water pressure just changed. My ears just popped. Something's wrong. You know, she picks up on those clues better than everyone else. She just has that uh, really good reflexes physically and mentally. She can, she can kind of sense that stuff before anyone else. So she senses that suddenly it's like a stillness in the water. You know, like something's wrong, like there's, a pr- there's been a pressure, kind of like what I just described. And then suddenly there's just a huge shadow. Now it's already pretty dark down here. They're deep under the water. There's very little light filtering through. Um, but what little light there is... gets blocked out completely by this monstrous shape above them. And it's coming at them pretty quick. It's clear the creature is attacking them. They don't have much other choice at the time. So they quickly, of course, have their weapons already out. Nobody was running around underwater without their weapons ready. Except for maybe Mercy. Because Mercy's got that pop and her morning stars in her hand. I can't tell you how many times that saved her bacon. But, uh, it's there and then they start fighting the dragon turtle. So the dragon turtle does not cast any spells. It basically swings by and slashes at them with its talons. It has big webbed feet, like a turtle, but it they even turtles can have 
claws. And these are, they got huge dragon-like claws on the end of his hands. Um, and the, the arms and legs are a little bit longer than you'd expect from a regular turtle, the arms and legs are. Uh, but same basic concept. Uh, and it comes through slashing at them. Doesn't try to bite them. Slashes at them and then kind of goes by. And it's even though it's huge, it's incredibly fast under the water. Um, and the first round, it's when they popped up, it's more of a get-out-of-the-way thing. And everybody just kind of dives out of the side. And no one gets hit by it, but it swims off and very quickly 180s around and is coming back again. Um, they don't even know if the thing... They've never spoken to a dragon turtle. Not all dragons are intelligent. Most of them are. Uh, they've never dealt with a dragon turtle. Darsh has heard of dragon turtles. They're supposed to be very intelligent, but he doesn't know. You know, merge world, right? Who knows? This could be from a world that's not. So while they're, you know, trying to yell out a little bit, I'm like, hey, we're doing no harm, so on and so forth. At the same time, they're swinging their swords in defense. Um, and it comes swinging by again. And Darsh specifically aims for the shell. He's not trying to do serious damage to the creature, but he wants him to know that the weapons and gear and their actual abilities have the capability to do some damage. Uh, it was something they talked about ahead of time. If they did have to fight it, um, the goal was they didn't want to kill it because they don't know where in the ocean this you know, trident could be hidden, right? They're not going to find it without the turtle, probably. So they don't want, but maybe if they attacked its house or something enough, you know, the shell, uh, and did enough damage to that, it might be more willing to talk. So there were several rounds of combat, and usually the same thing. It would come swimming by. Never once tries to bite them. Doesn't use any type of breath weapon. And yes, dragon turtles can have a breath weapon. What breath weapon can depend on what color of turtle it is. Much like the breath weapon of a dragon can depend. Um, if you look up the traditional 2nd edition monster manual, dragon turtles are themselves a thing. Um, I did add some more variations of them to kind of match the same color scape, where the chromatic ones versus the metallic ones... Um, good versus evil, so on and so forth, with maybe some neutral ones floating in the middle. Because um, there are neutral dragons. Shadow dragons, things like that. There's all the gem dragons, amethyst dragons, topaz dragons. There's a lot of dragons people don't normally hear about that exist in Dungeons & Dragons. And I like to bring them out once in a while. I like to bring a non-regular dragon in, because you never know quite what you're going to get with something like that. The same was with the dragon turtle. They'd never fought anything like this. So multiple rounds of combat go by, and they're specifically targeting the shell whenever possible. Um, Dandy isn't much use in this fight, and neither are the casters. They don't have much that they can do. Uh, Dandy's hoopack, even though it's got some blessings on it, it's like a plus two hoopack at this point, not going to do much against the turtle. And even though she's got some magic knives that could, you've got to imagine, I mean, from concept stake, if I get stabbed by a thumbtack, that's going to hurt a little bit, but it's not going to ruin my day. I'm not going to die from it. I have a sore foot for a couple minutes. That's what a dagger is. Darsh and Mercy, on the other hand, or Darsh specifically, and, and even Rokar, have the ability to do like real long cuts and gashes. That can make a difference. You know what I mean? Someone, Even if somebody has a little pocket knife and they do a good slash up your arm, that's, that's something noticeable. More than poke you with a thumbtack, it's like, ow, that hurts. Stop that. Smack. You know? That's kind of the turtle would be. Smack. <laughs> Um, Mercy, she has the, the opposite situation where while she's not doing as much hit point damage to the creature, her blows weaken the shell. 
like actually occasionally I think she popped off a couple scales because it is a shell but the still has dragon scales it's interesting the way they look managed to pop a couple of those off because she's hitting it with so much force and her morning star is a pretty strong I think it's like a plus three or plus four morning star uh, I don't think it had any other abilities if I remember correctly her morning star didn't have any special abilities but it was a really good one whereas Darsh had some okay magical weapons that had some pretty cool abilities um kind of one area where they differed a little bit. Mercy did carry a pretty good sword, though. I can't remember what it was, but she had a pretty powerful sword, I think. That was her backup weapon. So, this goes on for several rounds. Um, and they do some damage, and they take very little damage. Very little. Surprisingly. Or is it surprising? Because after six rounds, the turtle stops. It's floating a short distance from them and just looking at them. After a moment, it says, Enough! Fine, then. Why have you entered my waters? In perfect common. Now, how they reacted was going to really affect how the turtle was going to react. I have some options down here. If they're lie, they tell the truth, they're sneaky, they continue to attack it, the turtle would react differently depending on what they did. And he says, uh, you know, what are you doing in my territory? Why are you here? You see, the turtle was interested. He knew they were out there. He sensed them well before they knew he, he, he was there. And you could tell that they had quite a bit of magic on them. You know, magical turtle. So he was kind of waiting to see, are these powerful people? Or are they just people with some powerful gear? So he ran and tested them a little bit. If they were real easy, you just eat them. If they're really bad, he'd, let's, see, let's talk to them if they're pretty powerful. If they still are a problem, he'll destroy them. And that was the thing. If they continued to fight after he stopped, he would have destroyed them. There was little chance of that, but you know, I didn't think they would. They stop, and they're, uh, we, we've come to speak with you. We've come to ask for your help. And kind of scoffs at it. He goes, you've come a long way for nothing. These are my waters, and while I, while I tolerate no one else in them, I have no desire to leave them either. Whatever your problems are, wherever they are, they are no concern of mine. And he does give his name. Uh, his name is Athanasius. Um, but he's intrigued by them. He goes, he goes I, you've wasted your time, but tell me your tale. I at least am you've interested me enough that I at least would like to know why you're here. And so they were honest. They told them everything from the beginning. Hi, I'm Darsh. I'm from Darstopia. Yes, I'm egotistical and named islands after myself. Uh, sea elves, also very unhappy, being attacked by were sharks who have a big old monster, so on and so forth. And everything that, that's up to that point. Now, he does stop them a couple times and ask a couple questions about parts of their story. Um, he definitely states himself that he's aware of Euroclodon, and it doesn't make him happy that a beast of that nature is so close to his own waters. Which, you gotta think, it's several weeks away of travel for these guys, but maybe not so much for a dragon turtle. That's too close for the turtle. It does not please him that Euroclodon is nearby. And it makes them think, hmm, I wonder who would win in a fight between the turtle and Euroclodon. Technically, the turtle's pretty strong, it's magical, but Euroclodon's supposed to be bigger. Who knows? 
They say that they were sent here because the turtle has something that they can use to try to quell the beast. And he's like, oh, really? What is that? And they say, well, we're told you have the Triton's Fury. It's a magical trident. He's immediately unhappy that they're aware that he has that. He's like, how do you know that I have that? And they're like, well, we talked to the sea witch. She made us get some stuff, and she told us you had it. He's like, ah, I see. I knew that hag was going to be a thorn in my side eventually. Yes, I have the trident. It's an incredibly powerful magical artifact, and not something I would just hand over. I'll be honest, it's powerful enough that it could feasibly be used on me. Why would I give you this? I understand you want to fight the big thing. Yeah, I don't like it in my in my waters, but I don't know about handing that over. That is pretty, pretty powerful as an artifact. And they're like, okay, well, you know, we're good people. We'll pay you for it. He's like, it's not for sale. Again, I've told you. An incredibly powerful artifact that could be used against even me. Last, even if you, even if you somehow were successful... How do I know you won't turn on me? Let's take it a step further. What if you fail? And those were sharks you're worried about get a hold of the trident. Who's to say I'm ne next to be caught under some type of spell? Because I will say your witch was right about one thing. A creature like your Ocladon would not be working with them by choice. Either they have some type of power control over them or they have something he wants or needs that they're holding captive. He goes, but there's absolutely no way he's going to be hanging out with them on his own choice. So, like, if you fail, now they have a they have the Trident's Fury. Maybe I'll be their next target. Seems like an awfully large gamble. So our heroes tried to haggle, intriguingly enough. They knew that the dragon was a dragon. <laughs> and dragons love their treasure. And probably, even though they have a huge amount of coin themselves in their chest of holding, which he probably doesn't know about, he's probably got a good chunk of coin himself. A dragon this big has been alive a long time, probably got quite the hoard. Gems and jewels won't work. So their thought at that point was, okay, the one thing that will intrigue any dragon of an intelligence nature, magic, right? Magical items and magical artifacts. All right, well, what if, what if we trade you something? We've got some pretty powerful magical artifacts here, and they start listing off some of the things they're willing to come off of. And he's like, oh, let me see what you got. What do you got going on there? And they, uh, we got this, and they start, literally, it's like someone, it's like two people, say you're say, playing D&D, &D, and you say, okay, what does your character have? Oh, well, he's got a this, and it's exactly like that. It's like they're talking to the DM. Oh, I've got a this plus three. I've got a this of fire. And they're just naming off all their abilities. Like, nah, I don't need it. Nah, it's not interesting. Now nah, I have three of those. I don't need any of that. And I think, that, uh, I, I, that's trash. I wouldn't even keep that in my treasure. It's, it's like, this is sword plus five. If it's less than plus ten, I'm not interested. They don't make plus ten. Yeah, maybe not where you're from. I don't want to hear about it. You know, <laughs> things like that. And just dismissing all the things. Can you counterspell wish? That depends, doesn't it? You got to worry about things like that because... Counterspelling doesn't work quite the same in Dungeons & Dragons as it does in a lot of video games or card games. Spells have a different casting time, right? 
So if I have... I'm casting a wish spell, and it takes me 10 rounds to cast it. All you have to do is disrupt the spell. You don't even need a coward counter spell. Stab me. That's going to stop the spell. You do something, and it breaks my concentration. You could feasibly stop it. But if you try to cast a spell that stops me, and your spell takes longer than my spell, my spell still wins. So counterspelling doesn't exist, really. In, at least in 2nd edition D&D. I couldn't tell you about the current stuff. I wouldn't be shocked if they put it in there. Because 5th edition is more and more like a video game the more I'm playing it. 2nd edition didn't have that. If you wanted to stop a spell, you either have to have some type of magic item that made you immune to it, blocked it, or killed that caster before they got to cast it. Um, and that's where initiative comes in. That's where spell casters really deal their their, their issues. You know, everybody else, they roll a 10-sided. If I roll a 4, you roll a 5, I get to go first. The magic user has to add their spell casting time to that. So even if my side wins, but I have a casting time of 5, their casting time was 1, they're still going to get to cast their spell before I cast mine. What my spell does is going to completely depend on what that spell does to me first. If they disrupt my spell, I never get to finish mine. So, it can very much depend on the situation. But there's not just a spell you can be like, blocked it. It doesn't work that way. No. The power of a wish spell. Not to mention, you have to be able to cast a ninth level spell to cast wish. That's, that's not soft stuff. That's not soft stuff at all. You've got to be pretty hoss to cast that. Sixth level spell, dispel magic. Is dispel magic can get rid of a magic that's already happened. Wish is undispellable. Depending on what you do, because it's not really casting a spell, it's altering reality. And that's what a wish spell, in essence, does. It changes reality to be something different. I wish I had cat ears. can't dispel my cat ears. Those are a part of me now. I've changed reality. I have cat ears. Um, there's different stuff. But again, if it does exist in 5th edition, it's because it's coming more and more like a video game. But um, I'd have to look into it, because it's not something we ever worried about in our time. Uh, so yeah, so the turtle's like, yeah, I'm not interested in any of that stuff. And they go through everything they've got, and they try, well, what if we give you, and they start naming their good stuff. What if we give you several of these things? And he's like, no, no, powerful stuff. I, I, I'm not going to lie, you've got some incredibly magical stuff that under normal circumstances I'd be tempted to kill and take, kill you and take them. But nothing quite is going to equal the power of the artifact of the Triton's Fury. But I'll tell you what. See, this is where I get... This is where I haggle, right? There is something that would be worth lending you my trident for. Something valuable enough that if it was to be offered, I would be hard-pressed to decline the option to lend... He's stressing it. Lend it to you for a period of time. And they're like, well, we played Dungeons and Dragons. We know how this works. What do we have to do to get the thing we want? And I'm like, yes, excellent. That's exactly how this works. He says, I will lend you the Triton's Fury. Three things I will ask of you. And they're like, okay. What is it? Number one, if I lend it to you, no matter what happens... The first thing you do as soon as this situation is dealt with is you bring it right back. You do that before you do anything else. They're like, okay, that's an easy one. Yeah, we can do that. 
Dar's like, I got a ship. I'll throw some more supplies on, bring it right back. He's like, okay, good. That's the first one. Second one, while you have my trident, you will leave with me three members of your crew of my choice. Three. I get to pick them. They stay with me. They will be safe for a period of time that I will allot you the, 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 the trident. And then if you do not return with it, I will kill them, and then I will find you, and I will sink your islands, because I can do that. And they're like, we believe you. They're not as happy about that one, but they really don't have a lot of options. They're like, okay, what's number three? He says, you must bring me three pearls of Flonatia. And they're like, ah, okay, sweet. We thought it was going to be hard. What's a pearl of Flonatia? He says that Flonatia is a ancient, ancient creature uh, that has come through the merge into this same southern seas. It's a distance from here. But the beast, much like an oyster, creates pearls that are very, very strong in magical power and energy. They could drastically boost the spell power of magic. Do you see a fly? Maybe. I didn't see one, but it's possible. <laughs> um, boost spell casting power quite a quite a lot. There's something that would be uh, desired by anyone with magical powers. He's one of those people. Flonatia is a creature that is very old, older than myself, potentially older than your Aquadon, and it hibernates for thousands of years at a time. But it will form three pearls at a time. Bring me the three pearls from, from Flanatia, and those would be enough for me to want to trade you, to lend you the trident that you're searching for. Well, again, our heroes are stuck. They're like, well, what else are we going to do? <laughs> okay. They're like, we accept that. All right. How, how do we get them? What do we do with them? Well, the, the creature forms them inside himself, much like an oyster does in a shell. Uh, there should be three inside. You just have to get in there and get it. And they're like, okay. They're, they're imagining a giant oyster. Like, I've got to break in the shell, steal three pearls. Okay, we can do that. He's like, excellent. He goes, you'll have to pass through my waters in order to get there, but I will allow this. You will have access to the water that I consider my territory until this deal is done. But I recommend you hurry, because I sense that there's been some major movements in the area that you're concerned about. They're like, what do you mean? He goes, Rockledon has been on the move a little bit lately. Don't know where, but something like that swims around. You know that it's happening. And they're like, crap, what if, what if they got sucked on, you know, sent at us, or the sea elves, or... We're on Darshtopia, right? Now now Darsh is freaking out. Because he's like, oh, okay, that's not good. It's been on the move. He gives them the information they'll need to find Flonatia and then agrees to take them back to their ship, allowing them to climb on the back of his shell, which is really big, right? And at that point, he takes them back to the ship. One second. Mm -mm 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 -mm. 
right? Had to fix something real quick. One moment. There we go. <laughs> so, they uh, <clears throat> do that. Sure enough, they get to ride in the back of the dragon turtle, which Dandy found exhilarating, and everyone else not so much, because the dragon turtle is fast. <laughs> but it does not take long for them to return to the ship. Now, you can imagine what the ship's thinking, right? Like, they've been gone for three quarters of a day. You think they're okay down there? I've got faith in Darsh. He's led. He's been through worse ships than the... Oh, my God, a turtle. And just comes up out of the water. <laughs> Darsh on the back. Hi! Davey's like, hey, everybody. But he returns them to the Chimera, startling them. I kept implying that the ship would attack when they first see it. And Darth's like, I gotta find a way to make him not attack. I'm like, it's gonna be too late, man. <laughs> I didn't do that. But I, I made him think they would. Just, you know, for my own enjoyment. So, again, some information on Flonasia. Has been slumbering for a millennia. Very long time. It's an ancient sea creature, massive in size. So they go in the coordinates that uh, the sea turtle gives them. And they begin heading towards Flonasia. Takes them a couple more weeks. Now, they're a little bit hard on supplies at this point. They're having to start living off the uh, backup stuff. So now they're having to actively fish. Darsh has fishing nets and stuff for that. So there's a lot of fishing. A lot of fish. Luckily, they have a way of purifying water and such, both through the spellcasters. They've got two spellcasters, remember. They've got Nona and they've got Morik. So they've got those. And then Artemis has some ability in that way as well. So there's a few different... Uh, few different ways they can purify water. So they are making their food last. They have those type of supplies. And again, they arrive at the area finally. And on the way there, they do, of course, have one minor issue because, you know, it's Dungeons and Dragons, right? We've talked about this. I had to make them fight something. So they fought a razor whale. It sounds exactly like what it is. It's a whale with a giant razor. But uh, it's uh, over 60 feet long. And it mostly attacks the boat because it views... It's not like a spellcaster and intelligent. It's a whale. But it attacks it because it thinks it's another big creature in its waters. That's So they just have to do... They don't kill it. They just do enough damage to drive it off kind of thing. No one was seriously injured. The ship took a little bit of damage, but not much that they weren't able to repair within a couple of hours. So they make their way to Flonation. They arrive at the place, and once again, they have to decide who's going down. Um, in this situation, they're like, okay. Because they know a little bit more about Flonatia than you do. And I'm going to explain that in a little bit in a minute here. But they're like, we're going to take both of our casters this time. We're going to take both our casters. We're going to leave Rokar behind. It's just going to be our four regular heroes, but both casters. Because they don't know, from what they've been told, they may need some additional magic in this situation. Um, but they they may also have to be some sneaky sneaky. And the more minotaurs, the harder it is to be sneaky sneaky. <laughs> so I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a idea of what Flonatia is. Uh, it's a creature of massive size. It's the size of small city. It is literally huge. It's bigger than Serenity. At least the city proper. It resembles a large, roundish orb that is half-submerged in the ocean floor. 
Whether or not there's tentacles or whatever under that, they don't know. It's buried. All you see is this giant bubble. Huge. Spends thousands of years in hibernation, but it's so big that inside of it, you can literally walk around. There are going to be parts where there's water. There's going to be parts where there's air. It breathes. It's going to, just like any other fish, it takes air out of water. Walk into a lung, it's going to be full of air. Walk into a stomach, not going to be air. But it's so huge that other creatures may come to live on or in it, making it a very dangerous place to be. And that's what they're warned by the turtle. They're like, being that big, that strong, and we may, you may not be the only one who wants to get the pearls. He goes, but I can tell you the pearls are there. I, can, I know that. So they agree. So when they do start sinking down, the six of them, of course, again, it takes a while to get down there, but when they first start to see Flonatia, it has a bit of a glow to it. Like a, like a red, veiny look to the shell. It's very much overgrown in one would be coral and so on and so forth. It's not super thick because on occasion the beast might shudder in its sleep. And doing so is like having a small earthquake and stuff will fall all off of it. So it's not like super thick like that. But parts of it are in view and it looks almost like... Uh, a, imagine one of those balls that you put your fingers on, the electricity tracks your fingers, right? Except the outer part isn't see-through. It's more of like a, a pinkish flesh tone. But the veins are what you're seeing. You can see veins through its that, that skin, even though it's super thick skin. So they know that the thing is not inside of a shell. These pearls, per se, are inside of the beast itself. So they have to go down and get inside of it and find these pearls. So uh, basically a living underwater island or like an underwater city. It would be more like... An underwater cave system. Does that make sense? If you can find a way in and entrance into it, there'll be air bubbles and parts inside of it where there's air and there'll be parts where it's not. Um, but it's more like a, a giant undergrave cave system because that's the veins and the arteries, just like a, another creature would be, right? So if a vein is big enough you could drive two cars through it, somebody could feasibly walk through there. But then you got to think what other stuff would be in there as well. Especially if this thing hasn't moved in a long time, right? A living underwater cave system. Living, and that's the key point. A lot of these caves are going to have a purpose. Just like ours would. So they sink down and they see this. And it makes them a little nervous. It's the biggest creature they've ever seen. In fact, this is even bigger than Euroclodon, although this thing doesn't have quite the, according to the turtle, have quite the capabilities to damage like Euroclodon does. It's a peaceful creature. It, I mean, it, just due to its size, it decides to surface. It'll send tsunamis everywhere, but um, it's a giant creature. It's not intelligent. It's not really a thinking beast, if you will. It's just a really big, old, ancient beast. Supposedly, there are smaller versions of it, you know, size of ships and stuff, but this is the biggest one Flonatia is. So they sink down and they're trying to find a way in. Uh, they have to search for several hours until they find a, what literally looks like a blowhole. Um, 
and it's a vacuum. It's sucking water in. Um, as they get closer to it, they can feel pull. There's a current. So they, you know, it's not all of a sudden like, whoo, they're in there. I mean, it's, they can feel the pull so they can stop. And they're like, well, that's the first thing we found to get in. It's pulling stuff in, but, you know, for what purpose, right? If it's pulling it in to separate air and such, that's cool. If it's pulling it in, and it is pulling in other creatures and fish swimming by. You know, maybe pulling it going to a stomach. Maybe going into some teeth. Like, what does this thing even look like? How does it eat, you know? So that's a concern. They search a little while longer to see if they can find another way. They can't, so they return to this opening and they're like, okay, here's how we go it. And they go ahead and they do their classic tie each other together with a rope thing. Just in case, you know, somehow they this tunnel goes in multiple directions, they hopefully don't get separated. And uh, jumping into the water, well, they're in the water, but jumping in towards the hole, they get pulled in. The current's strong-ish. I mean, it's not pulling it with reckless abandon. It's enough that, you know, they would have a hard time getting out of it, but it doesn't pull them or slamming them against walls or anything like that, you know. They, they're able to you know, use arms and legs. They're able to push off walls. If it's going to, the water turns, they, it doesn't hurt them when they hit it kind of thing, even though it's very solid. Um, but it's, you know, almost like a you ever go to a water park and it's got the tube you can go down in. It's like that except the whole tube's full of water. Which, if you can breathe, which they can underwater right now, that's not that big of a problem. It's like going down a slide that's completely full of water. Another good example would be if you were being sucked up a straw. You know what I mean? There's a straw, and that's what it feels like. But it's a bendy straw. So, they get to a point where the water honeycombs. And I say that because there's a lot of different holes that are big where the water's flowing through and Darsh manages to grab onto one and he's holding on and again the water's not super hard he's able to hold on to it even though it's pulling everybody with with one hand he can keep him from going and he's just kind of pulling himself along until literally he comes to a hole that is above they get to the top and he kind of pulls himself up and he finds an air pocket he's like oh it's dark of course he doesn't he all he hears is splashing water but he well because it the uh, gotta explain this, so bear with me. He pulls everybody up inside with them. Now, as soon as they're out of water, the chokers they're wearing that let them have underwater infravision stops working, and they have to switch over to their regular infravision. It is cold. It is very, very cold. You're at the bottom of the ocean, right? It's very cold. Hello there, F. Welcome, welcome. Um, but yeah, it's very, very cold. So, it's they're not getting a lot with that. So they're like, okay, do we gamble? Except for everybody, except Mercy, because Mercy can always see in every situation. Her circlet she's had since the first adventure has made her the go-to in any of these situations. Like, I'll look around. You guys stay here. And that 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 sometimes bugs everybody else because everybody else has improvision, and the one person who doesn't sees the best. <laughs> kind of those ironic things. But uh, they decide to chance lighting a, a torch. And they're like, well, what if the beast doesn't like fire, you know, inside of it? Uh, is the first thing that Darsh is saying. And Mercy and Artemis are like, yeah, well, it'd be good to know now. You know, before we get all the way up in there and don't have any choice. So they're soaking wet. 
Um, so they open up the chest of holding where it's dry inside because it does water up in there. And they're, what, it, what looks like they're at the end of a cave, like a tunnel. It's kind of where they're at right now. Sometimes the water laps up a bit. So they, pull, they go in a little bit to where the water doesn't quite hit as much. Set down the chest of holding, climb inside, get out some torches, and then Mork pops them some fire. Him and Nona throw some little, little little bit of fire in there. It's really kindling. They don't want to carry all that. So they put the chest back away, and uh, Artemis has it tightly put in her her uh, pouch of accessibility, which she keeps her rings. Uh, I think I've told you guys what a pouch of accessibility is. I think you remember that. So they uh, they light some torches. And there's no reaction. None. Again, this thing is so huge. This wouldn't even be heartburn. You know what I mean? Unless they were trying to light the thing on fire with a bunch of gas and kindling. A little torch, a little smoke's not going to affect too much. Um, and occasionally the water will still come splashing in over there and get up to their ankles. So they're like, we need to move in just in case. So they start making their way up the tunnel. Because you have to remember that both Mork and Nona are human and they have no infravision. So without a torch, they were seeing nothing at all. Um, Mork has a light spell he can cast but they're trying to save that because they don't know how long they're going to be in here. Nona does not have a light spell. Oddly enough, she chose differently. And so they make their way through the tunnels. It's twisty and turny, and there's a lot of options. Um, and a lot of times they'll hear noises that they can't describe, right? It's not anything they've ever heard before. Loud sucking noise, a honk, you know, a thump. Something could be a heartbeat for a few minutes, and then it stops. Just a large amount of weird stuff going on. And occasionally, through what it sounds like through the walls, they'll hear what sounds like running water. Imagine, if you would, someone flushed the toilet in your house. You can hear water going through the pipes, right? You're walking through a pipe, and then not far away, you can hear a big big chunk of water through that, and then it stops, right? So... There's a lot. It's not quiet in here at all. So it's not like they have to be sneaky to not make any sound. It's very loud inside of Flonation. As I would imagine it would be inside of us if you were that small and you had, you know, hearing. You know, you're that small. So they make their way in. They travel for a couple of hours. Uh, at this point, it's like midday. They've been up for like half the day, Right. Want to make sure they had plenty of time. They weren't going to camp as soon as they got there. They start looking around. A piece of information that they received from the turtle is that there would be three pearls. And they're formed inside of Flonasia. One would be found in the heart area. One would be found in the stomach area. And the last would be found in or near the brain. These are the three parts of the body where different forces come together to form these pearls. And the pearls normally at their largest are like this big. They're like a one and a half basketballs, if you will. And they're like, are they dangerous? He's like, I've never seen one. I've only, I've knowledge that they exist, but I've never had access to one. Um, but yes, bring me all three. So it's time for them to look around. All right, so let me flip to the right page. This part of the adventure is like a choose-your-own-adventure book. So I got a whole bunch of information. I got to go what happens, then back to more information. So you'll see me flipping back and forth a little bit. They finally are coming through a tunnel, and it starts to get smaller. And they're almost at the point where they think they're going to have to turn around when suddenly, about that time, 
they see something ahead of them. Something they did not expect. They see light. They're literally seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And they're like, okay, maybe we're not in here by ourselves. They put their torches out because there's just enough glow that the humans can see okay. And Dandy takes a recon. Dandy sneaks ahead. And the tunnel does get small enough. Darsh will have to crawl through it at one point for Dandy. She can almost walk through it. She gets ahead and she sees that she's in almost right in the roof of a massive chamber. Imagine a football stadium. If you're in another country, soccer stadium, football stadium. It's the same thing. A big old stadium. And it has what looks like membranes and maybe arteries and such that's kind of crossing it in different areas. And she can see other entrances in the holes and such. And the top of the room is, appears to be... It's hard to describe. It's almost like it's... Let me describe this correctly. The way I described it was a bloody sun. Right? Imagine if there's a membrane, a skin... Right? The top of this is dome-like. So it's got a fleshy color to it. But there's bright red, looks like bloody veins running throughout this. And the veins are glowing. Enough that it's causing adequate light to be seen. Um, so they can see pretty well. Right? And they're like, okay, we don't need our torches. Dandy sees all this, but what else she sees is movement. And she's confused by what she sees. As she's looking down, she sees that there's like a a ring of either shell or membrane of some kind that goes all the way around this chamber. And the hole goes deeper. Potentially it's harder to tell, but there might be another ring down there. But on this ring, she sees what appears to look like buildings. Crude buildings. She sees life forms moving around in there. The buildings appear to be made of coral, rock, and hardened sand. And that's fine. But the things moving around are Naga. Now, Naga is what the sea witch was. It's a sea-like creature with a long, snaky-type tin, or a tail. Um, and these ones are armed and moving around. Um, you... Dandy can see, say you because I right here, but Dandy can see that there seems to be several large openings around that ring that lead somewhere else, and she can tell that at each of those there's some type of barricade or defenses built. She could see that there's probably relatively long term, and they're well manned. It's like they're defending this ring from something that was coming through those tunnels. Now looking around, she also sees there's several more holes, kind of like the one she's in, tunnels up and around the top and such, um, that aren't, because they're just kind of going to the roof, you have to climb across the roof to get to them. Where she is now, they could climb down. Um, She sees that there's other little 
complete. It's not completely smooth. There's little landings, and like I said, there's little veins and tendrils. She could probably climb down relatively easy. It's going to be a little bit harder for some of the. Okay, let's just say Darsh, right? It's going to be harder for Darsh to climb down here, and maybe the the spellcasters because they're not that agile. But with a rope, they probably could. They also remember have a flying carpet. And that's the direction they decide to go. They're like, well, if we climb down into a nest of Naga, which are historically not the nicest of creatures, that may not bode well for us. So they're like, let's get the carpet out. See if we can fly to one of those holes up at the top. See if we can find another way. Because they, from what they heard, from what they got from the turtles, that the brain should feasibly be somewhere in the top part of Flonasia. So they're like, well, maybe we can get to the brain. Right? So, they decide that Dandy's going to take the carpet herself first and go do a little bit of recon. Because, again, just her on there with her dexterity, if they need to, she needs to start flipping around and going fast on the carpet, it's easier to do that with just one person on there who can hold on than a whole party of six. So, Dandy starts flitting around and looking. <coughs> Excuse me. And searching around, she finds several potential tunnels along the ceiling um, that look a lot like the one they're in, but none of them really seem to be, you know, that. But they realize she does realize that there's another entrance down on that level, like the other three, but she didn't notice it at first because it's kind of behind the buildings, and it looks like it's been completely barricaded up. So instead of going back and telling everyone, she decides to investigate. And she's trying to be very careful to not get caught, of course. She doesn't want to be noticed. Luckily, not a lot of Nagas walking around like this, you know, looking up in the sky. They seem to be more concerned with, you know, the barricades by the three main tunnels. And when they so she flitters down and starts being around the roofs of some of these buildings. So some are like two and three stories. Yeah, relatively decent. Um, she gets to that back area and sure enough, it's barricaded. Um, oh, what's that there? Um, oh, yeah. It's okay, Smitty. Yes, I did. And she's correct. I will definitely message you about it after the stream. Thank you, though. Um, but, uh, so they, she goes down there and she sees it's barricaded and there's some guards, but not as many. Um, and they don't seem to be quite on as high alert as the other ones. I mean, from what she could see of the other ones, it's like they're prepared, they're prepared like they're about to be imminently attacked. So she gets down to that wall. It's, again, this tunnel's big. Two Darshas could walk through it, standing on each other's shoulders. It's very large. The barricades are only really kind of covering half of it. Um, but it's not quite as glowy down there as it is in here, or down some of those other tunnels, the big three exits that they noticed. So she says, at this point, she's, okay, I'm going to go back. I better tell everybody else before I start going down that tunnel. But when she did get a quick glance in it, it did appear like it was potentially going up. So she's like, I think that's the one we should try. So she goes back up, grabs everybody else. They agree that we'll try that one first. If not, we'll have to try to get one through one of these other three ones. Luckily, they're barricading to keep something out. They may be able to get through that tunnel really quick with their parachute, or their parachute, their uh, flying carpet if they could. So, they all hop on. They do decide to ride together. Nobody gets in the chest of holding. 
and they start making their way down and try to shoot through there very quickly. Now, this is a situation where they do get seen. As the six of them are coming down on the carpet, sure enough, there's some yells and people are, well, Naga, are starting to freak out. They've been seen. And it's not long before arrows and spears start getting tossed in their area. And much like you'd expect to see in a race movie, Dandy's like, hold on! And they're like looking down and they're sitting on a carpet. And they're like, to what? And she starts, and they're like, ah! They're like hanging onto the sides of the carpet kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> reminds me of uh, Moonbrook Drift back in the day. But they, <laughs> she starts shooting around and she gets to that tunnel and she right inside of there. And Darsh is having to duck down because she cuts it close. Almost snags his horn. Remember, he only has one and a half horns. And uh, shoots through there. And there's sounds behind them, but it does not appear. They get up a distance. The sound fades away quickly. They're not being chased. You're like, maybe that's good. Maybe it's not. They, they're like, we don't think this area could be that dangerous because this is the one direction they didn't seem to care about as much. Okay, cool. So they finally slow down and they get off the carpet because in case there's a reason the other people didn't care as much, they want to be better prepared. And fighting from the back of the carpet comes with all sorts of negatives because they are very close to each other. So they wrap that up, toss it back down in the chest of holding and continue up the tunnel. So they travel for a distance and it's relatively dark here again. They've got some torches out. They're making their way. Um, and let's see here. Yes. So the tunnel itself is much smaller, even though I said it was big. It's much smaller than the other entrances that they saw. Um, and as they're making their way up, they have to start dealing with something they never would have expected and are torn into combat. They expected a lot of things in here. The Naga was not a huge surprise to them. They had been... because they Much like where we stopped in the story, we stopped playing that day as well, and it was a week until we played again. So by the time we got here, they'd had time to talk, the two of them, the two players, about what type of creatures they thought I would throw in here. Naga was one of the big ones on their list. They got that right. And they're trying to think of what other creatures they might find. Because they knew what Flonatia looked like and it was big. They'd already got that information from the Dragon Turtle. Because we'd acted out a much bigger conversation about what, what was needed. So they had ideas. And they were not surprised by the Naga. And they were quite proud of themselves. But what they weren't expecting to fight is what they came across next. You are in a creature that is huge. Hey, what up, Rat? You are in a creature that is huge. That means everything is big. And what is the one thing you think you might find in a body that wants to get rid of things that aren't supposed to be there? So in Flonatia, has an immune system. And the immune system is several different types of things depending on what part of the body they're in. Many of them act like blood elementals barely intelligent creatures that know that they need to attack anything that should not be in a body. 
sure enough, as they're traveling through here, they start fight coming across these things. Not very often, but every so often they'll come across one, and it'll just be they'll be just walking down the tunnel, and all of a sudden this thing comes at them, like like it knew they were there, and just comes charging at them, and they end up attacking the thing. And this is something where the blades uh, did better damage than the blunts. Um, you imagine hitting imagine hitting a big jello with a a pole versus cutting it, right? That's the concept I explained it to. So they started, Mercy switched to her sword, um, and everybody was pretty much blade-wielding at this point. But they had to fight several of what were the immune system. They also ended up coming to a chamber. Now, this was not the brain chamber they were looking for, but it was a chamber. And they came to it, and there's like a drop-down, like a small cliff. And then there's a room, and there's another tunnel going up. So they've been going up for a while. Then they get to this room, it's a chamber. They're going to have to jump down and go up the other side. But in this room appears almost like fungus. It's like mold. Big, green, leafy leaves of things growing all around this room. And several of the immune system blood elementals bumbling around in here. And they're like, well, there's no way around them. Because they were staying in there. They weren't going in there. They seemed to be almost like... Uh, there was a weird pattern to it, but they were circling the room and all of them and just kind of moving around in there. So, like, we can try to make it across, but we have a feeling we're going to have to fight them. Um, uh, that Yes, rat. that is completely on Twitch. Yes, 100%. Yeah, we've already been doing that over there, so there's even some other ways to do it now. Yeah. Um, I'll... Hit me up uh, on uh, Discord, and uh, and after the stream, I'll, I'll give you some more of the specifics. But yeah, we're going to be doing... It's the same stuff over there. There's just more ways to get involved. Mm-hmm. So subscribers, um, people who donate $10, people who donate 1,000 bits, stuff like that. Thank you for the question. Um, so... They decide, you know, let's not mess with it. Let's just jump in there and attack them. The drop is like 10 feet. It's not that bad. Like We can hop down there. Darsh is like, I'll jump first in case there's like a hole underneath these leaves. We'll deal with it, right? If I don't go through, the rest of you will be fine. And if I jump down and they start attacking me, I might be able to hold myself, hold my own until you guys get down here. So they're like, okay, they decide to go with that plan. Darsh hops down. Sure enough, the ground under the leaves, solid. Lands with a thunk. And immediately, all three, because there were three, of these immune cells start blood elementals start rushing at him. Um, and they stand about five to six feet tall. They're a decent size. They're short for Darsh, but that's still pretty big to a kender, right? Everybody else starts jumping down as well, and they start fighting these things. Um, the elementals in this room were not the problem. Not the problem at all. As soon as they hit the ground, from the leaves, from the center of different leaves, a thing that looks like a bubble starts to expand in several different locations close to where they're standing. So they're fighting the blood and mental. Together, they, they obliterate one in the first round. Ton of damage. Dandy notices these things like, hey guys, what are those bubble things? But then they got two more on them and they're in combat. They manage to dispatch the second one when the bubbles start to pop. And a green, highly corrosive and poisonous gas starts filling the chamber. Uh, within the first round, they all are taking 
negatives to movement, nausea, throwing up. The immune system cell means to be it appears to be completely immune to it. It's a natural defense. So they're now having to fight with a bunch of negatives. They're retching, and they have a period of time to get out of there before it will kill them. So they had to very quickly make uh, ends of that last blood elemental and try to rush out of this chamber before it got too bad. Um, Nona was unfortunately right next to one where it popped. And so she not only did it pop and then fill the room, she got a bunch of it on her. And I said it was corrosive. It burned and she fell to the ground. It was hurting her so bad. She got hit with a splash of it. And so they, you know, Darsh basically picks her up. And for lack of better anything, he doesn't have time to run all fancy. He tosses her over his shoulder, even though she's screaming, and runs up the rest of the tunnel. Everybody else following him at this point to get out of there. And by this point, they're all feeling like their skin's itching and burning and such. Just from it, as it spread in the air, it diluted a bit, right? But it's still burning and itching. Their eyes are watering and such. And they're coughing, having a hard time breathing. Hoping that these spores don't, you know, infect them with anything. It wasn't that kind of spore. Saving that bacon for later. But they uh, make their way up in there and uh, Artemis has to do some healing on Nona. Um which isn't too bad to do, but she does get like a couple little small scars on her because Artemis is like, I can throw a big heel on this and heal these scars now or save the big heels in case we need them. And Nona was like, no, no, I'm good. There's just a couple little burn pockets here and a little one on my cheek. She got a mirror. She's like, I'm fine. I can get, I can live with that. I would much rather you have your healing spells for if we have to fight something worse, you know? Somebody had got that in the face and their face is being melting off. I'd rather we have that for that. So they accepted that, and they continued on. Took them a, about 30 more minutes of going up before they finally reach the room that they were looking for. I'm going to read you what I read to them. As you enter the large chamber, it is clear you are looking at the brain of Phoenicia. You are only able to see the top half of it as it appears like a large wet hill before you. Crackles of what appears to be electricity appear and disappear across it, and moving about are small green blob-like creatures about three feet in diameter. While it appears they move about with a purpose, you cannot ascertain what it might be. You can see rows of nerves and membranes going over and around the brain, which could easily serve as walkways. So they walk into this big chamber with a big giant hill of brain. The rest of it's hidden in the rest of the creature. There's veins and things going across it, membranes that they can walk across so they're not walking on actual brain. Because the brain appears to be crackling a little bit. A little electricity zip-zap there. They're like, okay, it looks like electricity, but is it magic? What happens if that hits us? We should probably keep to the membranes. And they asked. Yes, they sat there and watched for a while to see if the membranes ever crackled. The membranes seemed to be unaffected by it. So... They don't see anything that resembles a pearl. So they're like, okay, it's a big hill, right? It's got to be somewhere on the side of the hill we can't see. So we can try to go around this chamber, but there's a section of the chamber like that they would have to walk on the brain. Or they could stick to the walkways and hope that one of them leads to where they want to go. So they decide they're going to go over the brain to avoid actually stepping on the brain. They're sticking to the walkways. Um, and most of them are a couple feet wide. Oh, I'm going to pop off one or night. I also check through the store. No socks. 
I, I can check and see if they offer them. That's a good question. Give me 24 hours. <laughs> you as well, Jonas. <laughs> you have a good night, too. Yes, give me 24 hours. If they've got socks, I promise I'll have them on there for you. I wouldn't mind having some myself. Uh, for those listening, I have a, on my website, OnlyDraven.com, I have a store where you can find Merge Worlds merch and uh, Only Draven Gaming merch and stuff. He was mentioning that I don't have any socks, but by God, that's a good idea. They, I think I remember seeing them. No one's asked. I will do what I can to get some socks up there for you. <laughs> so, uh, they start making their way across. Uh, let me grab it here. Uh, right. There we are. So, they make their way across. Now, as they're crossing over, these little green slimy blobs that are floating around the brain don't pay much attention to them. They never go on the tendrils. They all seem to be staying in a certain section. Like, everybody has their own little area to be. And they're moving, again, they move with purpose. Like, they're doing something, but they don't react to them at all. They don't know if they're intelligent or if it's just pure instinct or, you know, programming. Like, it's hard to know, right? And they travel over, and they don't really see much else. And as they're getting over the hill, sure enough, down at the other end, what appears to be half in the brain, appears to be a large, pearlish pearl, like a big white pearl. Um, and it's smooth, which for the record, most pearls aren't normally smooth. I know that, you don't have to put that in the comments. But these ones are magical. And it also has some of that crackly electrical stuff occasionally zapping around it. So, they work their way to it, and there's a place they can get kind of get on the ground right next to it, and they're like, well, it's, it doesn't appear attached, but it does appear kind of embedded in the brain. You know what I mean? Like, like there's the brain, and then it comes, and then you see half of the pearl sticking out, like an eyeball almost. They're like, well, I hope that's the pearl and not an eyeball, because that's going to be unhappy if we pop their eyeball out. But a creature this big, that'd be an awfully small eyeball. And it's crackling. It fits the description they were given by the dragon turtle. And they're like, okay, um, I guess we try to get it out. And they're like, you know, this is a big creature. They don't want to hurt it. You know, this is a big peaceful creature been asleep for a thousand years, and they also don't want to make it angry. Uh, but they're like, you know, I'm not trying to kill it, so we don't want to take a sword and pry it out. They're like, Darsh is like, I'll see if I can just pop it out with my with my hands, right? Like, I'm not trying to hurt this thing. I'm going to stab it in the brain, you know? So he grabs onto the pearl and immediately takes 1d12 electricity damage. <laughs> it's not like I didn't keep saying it was crackling with electricity. Uh, but he zaps and he's like, ah! And we look at him he's like, I'm going to do it again. Everybody's looking at him like, is that it? He's like, no, nah, I'm going to do it again. So he grabs it again, takes the damage, but holds on. And he has to pull pretty hard. He does a strength check, but he's able to pop the pearl right out. And it has kind of that real sucky suction pop noise. Like if you've ever stepped in a big mud puddle, you're pulling your shoe out, you know, that kind of mucky mud noise. And so they managed to pull the pearl out. Once the pearl is removed, you feel the ground beneath your feet tremble. A low rumbling noise can be heard from far away, and you can all sense the great beast's displeasure. And they're like, that's not good. So they quickly open up the chest of holding. 
just a big enough entrance to be able to put the pearl inside. Even though it seems very sturdy, and it does continue to crackle with the electricity, but it doesn't hurt anybody anymore once it takes it out. So Dart, they go in there, Dandy goes down, he drops it to Dandy. It's, it's very light. It feels very fragile, but it's incredibly hard. So he drops it down, Dandy tucks it in somewhere, climbs back up. Let's get out of here. So they start making their way back over. Well, now the green things are zipping all over the place. And there's way more electricity crackling than normal. And their first thought is, oh my goodness, I hope we did not wake that up. Well, they didn't wake it up. But what they did do was catch the attention of the immune system. Those green things start flipping around. And then they all stop for just a moment. And then start moving towards the characters. And they're like, ah, crap. These, these brain blobs are not happy this happened. And now they know they're there. And they start coming at them very, very quickly. And they enter into combat. This brain is huge. There's probably a hundred of these things, if not more. And more appear to be coming from somewhere else. But they jump in there, and even though there's many of them, it's kind of like back in the, in the sea spiders. They're really not... They're not really like dangerous solo, but they are acidic, so they're very slimy, and the slime it gets on you, you can't just wipe it off. It sticks to you, and it will start to burn. When they, even when they you know, chop one and blow it up, kind of stuff, it starts to splatter on. They can hear a little bit of sizzling get in their face, like just enough to hurt a little bit. Not as bad as the spore room. So they have to start attacking these. And they're, even the blunt weapons, they're able to, poking them almost causes them to deflate. And so they're going to town on these things, and they just keep coming and coming. Uh, they went through that for about six rounds of combat. During that time, the mages did mostly melee. There wasn't a lot of spells they could do that would affect a lot of them that wouldn't damage the brain. And they'd made a decision that they didn't want to do anything if they could help it to hurt the creature. Because the creature's not evil, it's just a big sea creature that's really big. And again, they don't want tidal tsunamis wiping out the rest of the world either. But they're also like, you know, we don't want to hurt something if there's no reason to. But they're attacking this immune system, doing the best they can. After six rounds of combat, they've probably taken out 15 or 16 of them between them. Several of them got multiple attacks at this point, And for Darsh, each hit kills one. So he's like, I got three attacks. Kill, kill, kill. And he's just... Mercy's the same way, smashing them with her morning star at this point. So they're just popping these little green slime things. After six rounds of combat, they all stop for just a moment. And just start to shake. And they're like, this isn't good. And so they start running over the brain, trying to get back to the exit. They don't see any other ways out of this room than the one that they came in. They start running... And some of the ones around them start to explode. So they're popping. It's like these green things are popping and the stuff's going there. Now big gobs of it are hitting them. And it's burning worse. And they're, they're like trying to rush through this. But you can't just wipe it off, right? It's, you, you try to do that and now you're on your hand. It's, you know, it's like there's so many things in this world. You get like soap on your hand. It takes an hour to get the soap off. It's so annoying. But it's like that. And as they're running up over the top of the hill to the bottom, they can see that the ones behind them are exploding. They're trying to get away. But in front of them, a bunch of them are running towards the same direction they are. Well, not running. Sliding, if you will. Quicker than them. 
So they're hurrying over the brain. They're over the hill, starting to come back down. They can see the tunnel. And all these other green things go towards the tunnel, but they don't go down the tunnel. They just start to gather there and run into each other. And as they do, it's like multiple drops of water hitting each other. It just keeps growing into a bigger and bigger, larger, huge, monstrous green slime ball that is now blocking their way out. And this was the third phase of the combat, and now they had to fight the giant one. I'm not going to lie, they get their butts whooped. Uh, this thing, not only does it crackle with the electricity, it has an electrical attack. It's zapping from the brain. Is, there. It's almost like the, it's controlling the brain in that way, where the electricity pops up and starts zapping them. Um, and it, it doesn't have tentacles or anything, but it will extend out, like, a, like it'll just like kind of bulge out in, in a force and could do a very heavy, blunt hit. And it's Darsh once, and he goes flying back like 10 feet, and he's got to get back up and come run over. Um, so it does, it does blunt force damage, and when it hits him, it gets that slime on him, and it's just all, now it's big, so imagine a whole half of your body's covered in this. So they're sitting there, losing a hit, pound, hit point around just from the acid slime damage on them they can't seem to get off and fighting this giant green thing. The battle does not go their way. They are having a rough time. Merge bubbles. Yes, I merged the bubbles. Well played. <laughs> the uh, They are not having a good time. And they are taking way more damage. And what they're doing to this thing doesn't seem to be helping or, or hurting it. Uh, it's not changing in size. They're clearly chopping it and cutting it and such. But unlike the little ones, this one's not popping or deflating. The spellcasters at this point are like, we're going to have to try some spells. They start whipping out some of their big stuff. They avoid electricity because, obviously, there's electricity. Um, but they do have some fire spells, and they start doing a couple of those. That seems to get its attention a little bit and focuses it more towards the mages, which now becomes another pay, uh, problem for the warriors. But they're in rough spot. Artemis has already used a chunk of her healing spells in this thing to try to keep the acid from eating everybody away. And then the worst thing possible happens. Darsh takes a big hit. And Darsh hits the ground. Unconscious. Darsh is their big tank. Mercy's also pretty hoss, but Darsh has always been their big tank. And when Darsh goes down, that complicates things. Because Mercy, who is also like Darsh in damage dealing, is also the one who very often is protecting Artemis. Now she doesn't have that ability because she has to step in and draw this giant green blob's attention on her so it doesn't attack the rest of their friends. Artemis throws one of her last heals at Darsh, and it heals him, but it doesn't wake him back up. Was that a 1? No, that was the creature rolling a 20, to be honest with you. Um, that very very likely, feasibly, could have been a 1. But no, the creature rolled a 20 and did triple damage to Darsh and just knocked him senseless. Um, the second edition worked a little bit different that way. In second edition, when you hit 0, you went unconscious. You had to be healed back to 1 or higher to be conscious, and you have a chance to wake back up. If you get to negative 9, you're a coma. It takes way more healing to get you out of that. You hit negative 10, you're dead. 5th edition's very different. I'm still trying to figure that out. But it was much easier 
Second edition was like, I have negative five. You're not dead, you're just unconscious. So, Mercy's trying to do this, and she's fighting the best she can. And the spellcasters are starting to run out of spells, so they're like, well, that, that are useful. Like, they got wind spells and things that are meant to... These are sea mages. They got things that would help you on the boat. They don't do a lot of big, giant, monster, green slime combat. There was no class for that in mage school. It's about that time. While Mercy's fighting the creature, something comes flying past her head. Into the beast. It appears to be a relatively adequately sized spear made of some type of bone. Everybody else is like, oh great, now what? The Naga are here. And they spin around and see several humans. The humans are waving at them from a short distance, waving, come this way, come this way. And they're like, we can't, and they point at Darsh. <laughs> Artemis rush over and, and put, tries to do everything she can. She throws her last couple heels on Darsh. He wakes up. Mercy, and now a couple of these humans that are in tattered clothes, look like they're just makeshift stuff and stabbing at this thing with spears, everybody starts to run the direction they were led. And the green thing starts following them until they see a much, much smaller hole. Darsh is going to be a tight fit. For him, it's more like a jump feet first and slide through kind of thing. So everybody else goes in first, and then Darsh pulls himself in. And uh, I think, if I remember correctly, it bites his toes. Like, it hits him with the slime, and he feels pain on his feet, but they manage to help pull him through. But it's much too big for the giant slime to come through. Um, immediately, some more humans start piling what appear to be relatively large pieces of coral to block the tunnel. And our heroes find themselves surrounded by about ten humans. Give me one second while I grab a drink. I ran out of drink. One moment. Don't look at my back. I have returned. Sorry about the delay. I ran out of beverages. My throat is getting dry. I've been trying to hold on. Okay. Ooh, orange mango. Haven't had that one in a while. Okay. One man who identifies himself and is clearly the leader of the group. Introduces himself as the name Jarek. And basically he's like, you must come with us quickly before more arrive. And they're like, okay, sure. And they all seem to be kind of mystified, especially by like Darsh, of course, right? Big old Minotaur. They start falling. They immediately, of course, show reverence to Artemis, who's a cleric. The golden ticket. And they travel with them for probably a good 20-30 minutes with very little conversation. And they're going through many different tunnels and sometimes come to an intersection and Jericho will be like looking both ways and come this way and they, and they travel on. A couple times they go slide through what are relatively small holes and again the humans take time to stop and barricade them with pieces of coral and rock and other different things before carrying on. Until they eventually find themselves in a small chamber. 
At this point, the, the room appears to be almost carved out of bone. Like, it's all bone around them, but it's relatively smooth, where someone over a period of time, they have carved out a space inside of a large chunk of bone. Inside this room, they discover 21 people. 14 men, 4 women, and 3 children. Jarek introduces himself again. Explains that he was the first mate of a ship. Uh, was carrying passengers from one city to another. When... Uh, what happened? Uh, a storm. Yes, a storm sunk the ship. Um, he remembered All he remembered is the ship going down. And next thing he knew, he woke up being carried by something underwater. He could only breathe like the tiniest bit. It was very hard to breathe, but he, he, sh- he knew he shouldn't have been able to. He was underwater, but he felt something pulling him. And when he came to, he found himself in a place much like these guys found themselves. In a tunnel with some water lapping in. Uh, with a bunch of other survivors. A couple more times creatures popped up, but their heads were strange creatures you've ever seen. They obviously were some type of water breathers, and they didn't speak or say anything at all. And their faces were almost looked like seahorses, but with more human bodies. But their hands and feet did have webs. So they brought them in here and then left and just abandoned them. And he said, that was 12 years ago. Twelve years ago, myself and the other survivors, and some of these children are not twelve, I'm just going to point that out. Uh, Twelve years ago, they've been trapped inside of this creature, unable to find a way out. Well, that's not cool. It's not cool and it is cool. It's good and it's bad, because they have a lot of information about Flonasia. They know their way around pretty well. The bad news is, it's not just the Naga that's in here. Turns out that there's actually three warring factions in what's known as the Central Chamber. There's three different levels, the upper, middle, and lower. Um, All three of these have a different type of race and they're all fighting each other. The Naga, which were here the first, are on the upper level. Uh, They've been here the longest and there's really very little immune system issues up here because they've pretty much got that covered. On the mid-level, is where you're going to find, and I apologize, I never did figure out how to pronounce this. I just called them Sahugan. It's S-A-H-U-G-I-N. Um, yes, right? Let me find it. Planitia, upper level. Yes. So these creatures, um, let's see, they're the strongest of the three factions. Um, but they're in the mid-level, and they have to deal with the most amount of immune system. The mid-level is where there's a lot of it, and they could have very quickly probably wiped out the Naga and the third faction if it wasn't for the fact that they're constantly having to deal with the immune system. Again, they haven't been here as long. Um, This faction is the newest faction that was here, and up until they arrived, the bottom faction and the top faction warred a little bit, but kind of stayed away from each other. Um, let's see, but those creatures arrived post-merge. Now, the comment post-merge is very important here. Um, because Jarek and the other survivors have no idea what the merge is. Have no idea it happened. They have no idea that they're not on their regular world anymore. They've been inside this creature for 12 years. The merge was not 12 years ago. 
So when they get told about that by the characters, they're a bit blown away. They're like, really? The whole world, and they explain it, and at first they don't believe him, but then, you know, when Artemis says it, they're like, oh, we're going to believe her. They're like, yeah, they, they find out that even if they get out of here, there may not be a home for them to return to. Don't get me wrong. They still really want to get out of here. And our heroes are like, well, of course, yeah. We'll, when we leave, we'll get you out of here. And they're like, really? How will you do that? They're like, well, we have the ability to breathe underwater. Magical. We're very powerful. Don't, 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 don't make us angry. I'm just kidding. Like, we have the ability to do that. And, we, and they're like, well, how will you get us out of here? And they're like, well, we've got this chest. Now, the chest is a problem. That many people in the chest of holding, not going to have a whole lot of air. So they can get them in there, but how are they going to get them to the surface? They would need to get to the surface very, very fast. And for the sake of magic, if you will, the whole concern of the bends, which is a when someone's too deep underwater and their body's adjusted to a certain type of water pressure, as they start to rise too quickly, uh, air bubbles can start to pop up inside their bodies and literally kill you. This is a real thing. Uh, Merge World's uh, magic necklaces, they're not worrying about that, okay? I, I had somebody ask, well, what about that? I'm like, the magic stuff takes care of that. I didn't want to have to throw that on them. You know what I mean? They would have about 20 minutes, that's correct, to get everybody out of there. So they would have to go very, very fast. And they don't have any magical item that's going to get them to the top of the ocean in 20 minutes. So that's a concern. It would take probably a minimum of 45 minutes to an hour to get back up there. Because they do fall down to the bottom of the ocean much quicker than they swim up. Right? Because they're wearing necklaces that makes it easier to move underwater. They're not getting quite the swimming traction they normally would. But that's something that they have to deal with. Um, they are. They say, yeah, we know where the other pearls are. We've never gone in there to either of them. But yes, we know where they'd be when they start being told we need a heart chamber and we need, uh, what was the other one? The stomach. They're like, yeah, we've, we know where those are. Dangerous. Um, oh, anyways, I forgot to name the... Uh, the third faction. The third faction at the bottom is the Kuatoa. Kuatoa are like very large fish, or like big fishmen. The regular ones in D&Ds aren't that big. These ones are like twice the size. They're a very large faction of fishmen, if you will. Um, or they're not a large faction. It's a faction of large ones. I should say it that way. Um, give me a minute here. So, the things on the second level, the Sahugans that I talked about uh, for Dungeons & Dragons, they're very much like a fish creature. They're green kind of thing as well, um, except they have big fins on the back of their arms and legs, uh, and their heads almost almost like uh, uh, come down to like a little bit, almost like a little bit of dragon head, and they got fins. And some of them have two arms, and some of them have four. Um, and their feet are like really long fingers with webs. Their hands are like regular hands. I, I forgot, I realized I hadn't uh, described a bunch of these guys. So that's what they look like. So the other ones look like really big, imagine piranha men. Like they've got a huge mouth with teeth on it and such. They're at the bottom level. Um, so Jarek explains, okay, well, if you're wanting to get to the heart, that's in the mid-level. You're going to have to make it through at least one, if not two, of those factions. If you want to get down to the stomach, you're going to have to get through the bottom faction, 
which is the Kuatoa, the one I talked about, the Piranha guys. Um, you'll have to get through them if you want to get to the stomach. They say, we've spent the least amount of time down there. The uh, In that area, it's, it's, you know, it's not easy to get down there. You know, In the early days before some of the other factions showed up, which is now the merge is what brought in that, that other faction. They didn't realize that. Um, kind of makes sense. And they're like, yeah, around that time, a whole bunch of things changed in here. Creatures started popping up we'd never seen before, stuff like that. Before then, it was a little bit easier to sometimes sneak through some of the side tunnels, but as the factions began warring more and more, um, and they began protecting against keeping the others out, a lot of the passage stuff ended up being either destroyed or blocked up or guarded, so it's harder for them to move around a lot of areas. All the factions know that they exist, um, but they consider them more of a pest. Uh, they've probably killed six of them in the last year. They lost a couple earlier from that, but as the warring's gone on, they, the humans aren't really a threat to any of them. They're just considered more pests, so they're not actively seeking the humans out. Of course, with Darshan them there, that might throw that balance off a little bit. So, they're like, okay. Awesome. So we need to get down... Well, the next one is obviously the stomach. and So they have to decide, okay, do we take everybody with us now? Right? Do we start making our way through these factions with 21 other people, 14 guys, 4 ladies, and 3 kids? Or do we leave them here, fight our way through the middle, fight our way down to the bottom, and have to fight our way all the way back up to get to them again? Both of these options suck. Neither of these options are a good option for either of them, but there really isn't a third. It's one of the two. And in either case, they're going to have to take at least a couple of the humans with them because they know where they're going and would be the only way they'd get back again. So in either case, a couple of the humans, Jarek at least, and it is Jarek that ends up going with them as the guide, as the primary guide, I should say, um, is the only way they're going to be able to get around in there. So they decide not to bring the people with them. They're like, we would rather fight our way back than to bring kids into a situation where there might be combat and such. Um... Luckily, these guys have a bunch of crude weapons that they've made out of large fish bones and things that have come through because this is... Flanatia eats all the time. They explain that food and fish and other things just get pulled in and go through the stomach and get digested. Um, and there's always... You're always finding stuff washed in here as well. Uh, in the, like where Darsh and, and his friends came in through the, that one hole, that suction pulls in other trash and floating stuff. And sometimes even weird pieces of wood and stuff have shown up or busted planks from a ship that might have sunk at one point. So they have a few things, but they don't have anything you'd consider traditional weapons. All of that was lost when their ship sank. Their clothing is mostly made from scraps or what vegetation they can find here. Um, and they're, they're in pretty bad shape. Darsh and them whip out that barrel of pickled fish, and they are heroes. I'm going to tell you that. This is a situation where the pickled fish literally came out. But then they gave them some bread and cheese, because they've been eating fish for 12 years. They're even more impressed with the bread and the cheese. And there was some jerky, if I remember correctly. So they decide they're going to make their way to the stomach first. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, it's the heart first. I'm sorry. The heart first, because that's in the middle. So they're going to make their way to the heart. Get to the heart of the matter, if you will. By the way, we're not going to finish today. We'll be finishing next week. This is taking a little longer than I thought it might. But that's a good thing. It's a good thing. I promise. 
Now they will say this: the heart they they have it's harder for them to get down to the stomach because it's so far away now. They can get to the heart, but they rarely do because it's one of the most protected areas inside of Flonacea's body. Uh, the immune system there is also the most active. It's on the mid-level, which is one of the reasons why the Sahaguin or Sanguin or whatever we want to pronounce them uh, have a problem <clears throat> because they're constantly fighting against the different types of immune system. And each section has its own type of immune system, you know, to keep the adventure spicy. They decide that's where they're going to go first. So they start making their way out. So Jarek is the one that goes with them. He's like, listen, if, if you all die and I die with you, so be it. Everybody else can continue on like they are. Um, I don't want to risk any more people than that. But at the same time, if this can get us out of here, I'm, I'm happy to go with you and risk this. If we can get these things and get out of here and you can take us with you, that's good sauce. So he's like, okay, cool. They're going to go. Now, before they leave, on the off chance they failed, the heroes went down the chest of holding and brought out all sorts of different stuff. They had tons of extra clothing in there. Uh, they probably had some things like shoes may not fit, but they were able to pull out that, even some armor. And they always have like a stack of weapons in there. They always have no less than 20 plus one long swords in there. Because the Oromanian elites always carry two of them, and every time they kill the elites, they take their plus one swords. So there's a stack of those. They're like, here, have some swords. And Jarek's like, it's been 12 years since I've had a real weapon in my hand. Yeah, and he's like, there we go. And it makes the humans feel a little bit better. They're like, all right, okay. Got some real clothes. A lot of it's not going to fit. You know, Artemis Mersing, different size stuff. But they have a lot of minions, so they may have some backup clothing in miscellaneous sizes. They got blankets and such. So they give out a bunch of supplies, so if they do die... These people are a little bit better off than when they left, right? They give everybody weapons. The women, the children, the kids, the adults, everybody gets weapons. Uh, but Jarek slaps on a sword and gets a girdle and puts it on. He's like, there we go. Because he, he was a first mate. He knows how to do a little bit of fighting. He's kind of competent. And it's because of his leadership that they've survived as long as they have. So the middle level, as I mentioned, <clears throat> is the largest of the levels. The Sanguine occupy only about one-sixth of it. That's one-slash-sixth fraction. Again, as I mentioned before, they are the strongest of the factions. The creatures themselves, not only they have the best weapons, the stronger warriors, and their mages are more powerful. But because of their constant fight with the immune system to try to hold on to what land they have there, they've been unable to really focus their fights on the other two factions. Again, they are the newest. They don't have a lot of buildings... There are some crude and small dwellings in what would be their town. Um, there are less of them than the other factions, but they're just really more capable. They do have a large fence around their area, and unlike the top area where the Naga have barricaded and lived there so long, they're just keeping the immune system out at those three entrances, which are also the only entrances that these Sanguine can get up to them. Right? Kuatoa can't even get up to them anymore. They used to fight the Kuatoa, but they were so far away that it was skirmishes occasionally. Now with this faction in the middle fighting with both and the immune system, they're always on high alert. But on their end, they basically just have a section that they've got and the rest of its immune system that's constantly attacking them. Well, they want to get up to the higher level, which is easier to defend against the immune system. They definitely want to take out the Naga to be able to do that. <clears throat> Um, so to reach the heart chamber, they will have to move into an area controlled by the immune system. That's what Jarek recommends. 
He's like, as bad as the immune system is on the second level, the middle level there, trying to go through the town or the area the Sanguine have, I mean, listen, I'm not saying you're not capable warriors, but most of these are Darsh in size. They're, they're very close to Darsh size, which is another reason why they ignore the humans. A, they can't fit through a lot of the holes the humans can, and B, the humans really can't do much to them. They also use weapons of some metal, but very often, because they can leave, they can breathe underwater, so they can leave, go out in the water, mine stuff, come back with stuff. <clears throat> but they have a lot of much stronger weapon and armor as well. But Jarek says, our best chance is to go through where the immune system is and avoid them, but the immune system itself is an issue. Um, and then, of course, the heart chamber itself is the best protected of all of the pearl chambers. Uh, let's see. So they explained to them that there are four different types of entities that are part of the immune system in the heart area. The first ones are blood cells. Literally that. It's just large blood golems, kind of like what they saw before. But their main, their main thing is they just defend. They block, they defend. They don't do a lot of damage, but they can do enough to keep you from moving forward. Then there are the immune cells. The immune cells themselves are the main villain, or the main force. They're, again, in this area, they're more like humanoid elementals, but their feet don't exist. So imagine someone where, from the waist down, it's just like water elemental, but from the top, it still has arms and such. Um, and while it doesn't use weapons, it's incredibly strong, and it's made of that same green stuff, so it's corrosive. Um, and then there are the T-cells. The T-cells are what control the immune system. So the T-cell is basically um, another type of blob, but it's more of a bluish color. And it's kind of what's controlling all the green things. It's directing them where they need to go. It's the general of that army. There's many of those, but there'll be some of those in every, situ in every area, and they're the ones that are directing the soldiers of, of like, something's attacking over here. Not necessarily a person, right? It could be like, <gasps> the flu. Go fight the flu. And they go fight the flu. <gasps> this person got cut. Go fight infection. And they're the ones that are directing it. For the record, this is actually how immune system works. I learned about this because I have an immune system medical issue. So I named it after actual stuff I knew something about. And then the last ones are the heart wardens. The heart wardens, there's not as many of those, but they're very big. Very big. And they're also like the blood elementals, but much larger. Uh, and they can be hard to deal with. They're slow, but they do a lot of damage. Um, so our heroes are like, okay, well, how are we going to deal with this then? We're going to have to pass through one of these areas. And they're like, all right, well, we're going to have to fight, obviously. We're not going to just make it right through here. But what's the smartest way that we can do this? And so they start talking to them about it. And they decide that what they need to do is they need to find a way to target some of these immune cells, the T cells. If we could take out the T cells which control the rest of the immune system, we still may have to fight them, but there's not going to be something controlling them. They may cause some chaos and some anarchy. So we need to target the T-cells, and obviously they don't know what a T-cell is. This is biology that we understand because we live in our world. That's just the name I've given them. They would just call them the blue ones, the green ones. The, and that's how Jericho... Now, the red ones, those are the ones that defend... <laughs> The blue ones tell the green ones what to do. We figured that out. You know what I mean? So it's going to be more along those lines. They would explain it that way. I'm using the actual terminology because it, it, that kind of stuff can make sense to us. But if it's too technical, tell me, and I'll dumb it down to the green one. Not to dumb it down, but you know what I'm saying? If it, 
if it's taking you out of the magical side, I should say it that way. Because I want D&D to see magic and dragons and such. You know, you're not here for a biology lesson. So if it's getting to biology, let me know. Hey, Kevin. Oh, I <laughs> appreciate you. I like it, Ashley. So they decide that's what they're going to do. So they get to an area where they can kind of... They can see... I'm going to call them the sanguine. The sanguine fish that are way off in their town over there. And it's, it's constantly being attacked by low-level immune system. That they're always constantly fighting a little bit. So they see at this end where they're at, they can kind of see around the chamber. And they're like, okay. He's like, that chamber over there, that tunnel will lead us to the heart. And they're looking down. They're like, yeah, we're going to have to make it through like 50 or 60 of the T cells, which are the, which are the, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the immune cells, which are the green ones. And for every 10 of those, there's one of the blue immune cell or the, of the T cells. I'm like, okay, so we need to go through here. We need to target them. And this is where they, for the record, I should say that they do spend the night resting and camping with the human survivors and heal up and get their spells back. I didn't mention that. But in case you ask, well, where'd they get all their spells from? They did spend the night camping with them and resting before going on. They had set the precedent with the Chimera that it may, may be gone for several days doing this, so the Chimera is aware they're going to be gone for a while. In case anyone asks about that stuff, it is something we did cover at the time that we were playing this. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. Yes. So like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to charge in. We're going to do that. Oh my goodness, I'm running out of pages. Oh, there's only like six pages left. And then we're done. My goodness. There's a lot in those six pages. <laughs> we won't get them all done today. So they decide to take that attempt. So that's what that's kind of what they process. They Their goal is just to make enough damage to get through. So the mages and... Our heroes who jump into their chest of holding and pull out some crossbows and things of that nature. None of them are archers per se, um, but you know anybody can point a crossbow. If you're just shooting at a big blob, there's a chance you're going to hit it. Um, and you've got to assume Mercy and Darsh have to have some kind of experience with it. The mages are shooting their magic missiles, or in this situation, lightning bolts, because that could work. And they're popping, they decide they're going to shoot a bunch of attack and then try to charge around the outer edge. And they're shooting their attack not at the direction that they're going to go. They decide to shoot it a bit more away from that towards the attention where the city is. Their thought is if we attack them in that direction, that may draw more of the cells in front of us out there to try to figure out what's attacking it. It was a very good idea. They completely came up with an and I liked it a lot. And it worked, more or less. They still had to fight a few. But by doing that, what they did do was anger all the immune system on this level. And for the first time in a long time, the Sanguine had in a huge immune system a battle and attack them. So they caused some anarchy in that group in that level because a whole bunch of them went that way. Um... But our heroes rushed through as best they could. They still had to fight some. There was some basic comment, some additional or, uh, combat, and some spells were cast. But overall, they made it pretty through successfully. Uh, no major damage, uh, no loss of anybody. Jarek was very impressed. So traveling to the heart chamber itself um, was a bit more of a challenge because now there's no, now they just have to fight and keep pushing their way through. Um, 
this is where they came across larger blood cells. Um, and I know you're probably wondering, hey, what happened to those big giant blood cells you talked about? They didn't attract any of those. On the way down. I'm just saying. You may want to think about that. <laughs> so they make their way to the heart chamber. So they're fighting their way through a bunch of blood cells to get there. And it takes a while. They're, luckily, they're not taking huge amounts of damage. Right? Um, they're protected enough and strong enough that these things, when they do hit them, don't do a lot of damage. And the blood cells, they're not acidic at all. They're just, it's like blunt hits. You know what I mean? They're not acidic. It's just that. All the immune stuff that's supposed to keep you out of the heart was back there. And occasionally they'll come across an immune cell shooting up or down the tunnel, because that's how that works in your human body. They do constantly flow through you. Um, but that's where the infection is, right? In, the, in that chamber behind them. The body is saying, that's where the infection is. These fish guys are affecting us. So all the immune cells are constantly going at that direction, trying to clear out that infection. It sees there's something in the body that's not supposed to be there. So occasionally one's coming down the tunnel, eh, they got to kill it to keep on going. They don't see any of the T-cells this way, though. It takes them a couple hours. It's Again, this is a big place, right? It's like a city. And they have to get to places they get... Jerk's like, okay, it's been a while. I'm pretty sure it's this way. Once or twice he was wrong. He's like, ah, we went too far. I'm sorry, it was back there. And they believe him. And, 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 and I want to stress right now, at no point was he leading them astray. I was making it believable. He hasn't been this way in years. He'd only been this way a few times before in the early days. Because the immune system wasn't built up like that before the Sanguine moved in and started building their own town and such. That's what caused more immune system to kick in. I have an immune system medical condition, obviously. I know a little bit about it. So... When they reach the heart chamber, this is where they find the heart organs. Those are the big blood golems I talked about that are very large. The heart itself, this chamber, as they get to it, is full of blood. Straight up. The whole heart chamber is full of blood. They're going to have to swim around in it. And they're like, ooh, we don't know if our necklaces are going to work in there. They had members, remember, they had more than six. So they have one they can give to Jarek, which they do, so that he can breathe. It's like, all right, let me test it out. Mercy decides she's going to test it out. So she kind of goes underwater, <gasps> tries breathing, and she's able to breathe. There's enough oxygen in the blood that the magical thing is able to pull that oxygen out and be able to let them breathe. It make, it's not technically for underwater, it's under liquid. So they do work in there, although the infravision does not work. But this chamber also is a little bit glowing. The heart itself is glowing because that same blood that was in that upper chamber is flowing down into here. So the room itself is relatively bright. It's thin blood. They can see through it. So it's not like, you know, you're flowing through red paint. It's more like you're going through pink water. Uh, because, again, if you're looking at blood, there's blood and there's plasma. If you've ever given plasma, you know they're pulling something out of the blood. Again, all biology, I'm trying not to bore everybody that much. But the concentration of blood to plasma, the plasma is larger. So it's more like just very pink water. So they can see somewhat because of the glow 
of the veins around this room and then the heart itself and the heart moving it's the the heart you they can barely see the heart move right the heart's like it's huge right the heart itself smaller than the brain oddly enough in this creature but it's and this the heart is more of a controlling mechanism than it is like our heart where it runs everything and tells you know, that kind of stuff it's it pumping the blood not so much it's just the thing that's pumping some of the blood to the brain and to the other things so they're swim they're like okay we can go through this it's glowing enough that we can see so we're not taking any negatives but it's not like perfect vision except for even mercy's affected by the pink water this isn't a lighting issue and those big water, those big blood golems are swimming around in there. So not only do they have to go into the water, now they're fighting under blood, but technically underwater. They're fighting in a fluid against giant golems. And I say giant, I mean like 15 to 16 feet tall. So relatively giant. To Darsh, yeah, not so much. To Dandy, very much so. Uh, but very large. The biggest ones they've come across, except for the giant one that merged together. Um... And they have to fight against uh, several of those. And they have to assume that if they get in there, even if they just have to fight one and manage to get to the pearl, when they pull that pearl out, they're probably going to get the attention of the rest of them. And they, they're, uh, they're assuming that there's five or six from what they can tell. But it's a, it's a decently large chamber. So they decide to give it a shot. Jarek's like, this is very weird. We're like, we understand. You know, you're about to swim through blood to fight blood elementals to steal a pearl. This is our life, man. Trust us. It doesn't get much easier. than It's just how we live. So Jarek joins them inside. He's got a little bit of armor on. He's got a sword. He's got some boots on now. He feels much better with the boots. It's a big thing. I remember he really wanted the boots. They had some that were his size. So they go inside. They start swimming through. And sure enough, it doesn't take but just a moment or two before the closest um, heart warden starts coming at them. The heart warden, while appearing to be blood, is non-acidic. Again, these aren't like the green things. But um, they're sharp. I'm going to say that in a weird way. Like, imagine uh, Terminator 2 kind of stuff, where they're literally changing... Their, it's like a golem. It doesn't have feet again. It's The bottom part's like just blood trailing off. The top half of it's humanoid, and it has like just three large fingers, and each finger comes to a sharp point. And so it, it starts slashing, and they weren't expecting that. Um, even Jarek had never ever been, had to deal with one, so he didn't know that was going to happen. But they're actually sharp. And... That's where that, again, it's sharp and it's 16 feet tall. You can imagine how big those claws are, right? It's big three claws. So they go into combat with it. They're in a rough spot again because their mages are not really useful down here. Had When they were up there fighting against the sanguine and, and the immune cells, things of that nature, they were, they were much, much more useful. But here, under fluid, there's not a whole lot that they can do. Um... They can cast their spells, so they're able to cast you know, your basic magic missiles. And I want to say everybody had a wand of magic missiles, which is very common for a mage to have by this level. So they're all popping off magic missiles to help a little bit, but a lot of their big spells aren't going to do a whole lot. Fireball in here, probably not the best idea. 
Because their concern was, if we shoot a fireball, what's it going to do to the blood? It's not going to burn it, but at the same time, if somebody puts fire in my heart cavity, I'm probably going to have heartburn. That's a dad joke for you. Uh, but it could cause some serious damage to the heart. And again, they're not trying to kill this creature. They know they kill an immune cell, it'll make another immune cell eventually. But they're not trying to damage this creature. So that's where they're at. Once again, this thing is solid enough that everybody's traditional weapons will work. Uh, Dandy has switched back to her daggers, um, which is almost always better than her hoop pack. Um, Darsh is using his sword. He's gone double sword. I don't think he's using the shield, if I remember down here. He was using double sword, and Mercy was using Morningstar and shield, which is what she always uses. But this time, the Morningstar was strapped to her back, or the shield was strapped to her back, because... It's not easy to swim and hold a shield. So, <clears throat> she had her shield out, but Darcy was in the chest of holding. Um, and he put that away after they had to climb after the humans. Because at one point, he almost had to leave the shield behind trying to squeeze through one of the holes. That's when he tossed it in the chest of holding. Because his shield is big. It's a very big Darcy-sized shield. And it's made of green dra dragon scales. He's had it a very long time. He does not want to lose that. I think that's the, only, that's the oldest piece of magic item he has at this point. Everything else is... Newer than that. He did not want to lose that. So, they make their way in there and they're fighting this thing. Um, and they're doing relatively good damage to it. It hits them occasionally. It's snagging. Artemis is the one spellcaster who has some work to do. Um, and it's relatively successful, right? So, they're able to take one out relatively well without taking a lot of damage. But by defeating one, it attracts two more. Then it gets a bit harder. Um, and so this combat's going on, and a couple times Mercy keeps dropping her Morning Star. It's always funny to me how often Mercy drops her Morning Star. Uh, they all roll ones regularly, but Mercy almost always rolls drop weapon, which is hilarious because it's the one person where that's not a bad thing. But she's like, aha, oh, pop, haha, oh, pop, and just teleports it back to her hand. She has unlimited uses. Very cool magic item. I'm glad I designed it. But uh, <laughs> she did that. Um, Dandy dropped one of her good daggers. And Dandy went after it. She's like, I'm not leaving that good dagger. She swam down to the bottom of the chamber. So she was out of combat for a few rounds getting her dagger. Uh, but she, she, it wasn't her fire dagger. She, again, same situation. They were trying not to bring fire into the heart chamber. Uh, but they did, as she was one of her good silver daggers with a plus on it or something. And so, luckily, none of these creatures had to be attacked by a plus weapon. Any weapon would work. Um, and then Jarek was doing pretty well. Even though it had been years since he'd had a, a sword in his hand, the man was, was military or navy trained. He had some skills. So they're fighting it. And it takes a while, but they finally take out the other two. Now, I said there were five or six of them in here. When they killed the first one, two more came over. So you'd imagine that if they killed two more, the last three would come over. But that's not the case. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They see the last three moving very quickly around the heart to the other side. Moving in the same fashion that it moved towards them. 
seeing them as a threat. And they're like, okay, we're obviously not that scary. So what does it see as a threat over there? It obviously wouldn't be part of the immune system. That's part of the immune system. It wouldn't be viewed as a threat. So their first thought is, which one of the three factions has entered the other side of the chamber? Jarek's like, I have never been this far in. I didn't know there was another side of the other side of the chamber. If there is, I don't know where it goes. But they hear, almost right after that, three large pops underwater, like a bubble bursting. Underwater. I'm going to say this, and I know it sounds bad. Sounds like a fart underwater and the bubbles pop. Just go with it. it. It makes sense. So, as they do, they see that the water on the other side gets a bit darker red a little bit. Like, you know, shark in the water. Just like when they blew up theirs, they killed theirs, got sharks. Whatever it is, took out those three pretty quick. So, at this point, they're thinking, if it was that quick, it had to be the sanguine. Because they're the ones that are on this level. Right? And they're the strongest of the three factions. They're very large. They can do a lot of damage. They're dark size, I said. Almost dark size. So maybe they followed them or somehow came up here to stop them from getting it. So, obviously, it's the Sanguine. So they begin moving to the other side because they can't see the pearl on their side. The pearl has to be on the other side. Makes sense. So they want to get to it before the Sanguine do because they know the Sanguine have some spellcasters um, and while they don't know how to use it to boost their magic, because the turtle didn't tell them, um, that doesn't mean the sanguine don't know how to use it. So they start going around. Darsh is being the physically the strongest, is the fastest swimmer. Um, everybody's pretty healed. And he starts swimming around the corner, and they come shooting around the side, swimming as quickly as they can, to try to take on the sanguine. they got their weapons out, they're ready to go. But it's not a sanguine that comes shooting through the water towards him. In fact, it's it's smaller than him. Not much larger than Mercy, to be honest. Probably about the size of Jarek. This small human-like shape coming at him quickly through the water, because Darcy's in front. Not even moving its arms and legs, not even swimming, but just like it's sh- shooting towards him. It's long black hair going past his shoulders. It does not have a hat before you freak out. <laughs> it's not that. And Darsh immediately finds himself in combat with something much stronger than him. The creature is called a Velia. I never used a Velia before. I was very excited with it. I, I invented it. But I mean, it's, it's a new thing. A Velia is an underwater vampire. Think about that for a minute. Underwater vampire. A vampire that lives off the blood of things underwater. A sea vampire. Why not? And when a vampire drinks blood, usually gets more powerful drinks a lot of blood, it usually has quite a bit of power. It's fully charged up. So let's just say hypothetically 
there was an underwater vampire that has spent the last how many years himself in almost hibernation in a chamber made of blood. This Velia, which has a name, but they never met it. Well, it's an underwater... I'm, I'm sorry. Velia's his name. It's not, it's not the type of creature it is. I'm bad. Velia was his name. I said it wrong. It's an underwater vampire, but his name is Velia. Uh, he's been living in the heart chamber for several hundred years at this point, in hibernation, living off the beast's blood. The combat awoke it, and it is not happy. Kind of like a mermaid vampire, except it has, it does have feet, and it just it has it's it doesn't usually wear shoes, you know. It it has very often they're like naked or very barely dressed, um, but its feet are somewhat finned, and it's got a little bit of fins in its fingers as well. Um, but it's in this one has been gorged on blood for several hundred years, and it is wearing some gear and weapons, and it's intelligent. And it attacks. Roll for initiative! At least that's what I told them. This was a really fun fight. Uh, because it brought in a lot of the typical things you'd expect from a vampire. Super fast. Super strong. Except now it's swimming super fast. Uh, it does have weapons itself. It did have a sword. Although the sword was oddly red. Mostly because it was caked in dried blood. And stuff that had been stuck to it all this time. It actually, it had been inside the, the kind of the skin on the chamber. It had grown over it uh, over time. Uh, but it's super fast, super strong, has many of the vampire abilities, including drinking blood, obviously. And so everybody goes into combat mode, obviously. This is a much more threatening creature than anything else they've come across in here so far. Even the big slimy thing, well, it's a big slimy thing. This is an intelligent creature that's been alive for several hundred years, and right now is a little chubby, because he's been gorging on blood. I remember that I specifically stated he was plump. So Darsh is strongest. Mercy's relatively strong. She's also strong. She's stronger than any NPC we have. It's just so hard to call her strong when she's standing next to Darsh. You know what I mean? If Darsh wasn't there, she could out-arm wrestle any one of her knights. Even the dude's twice to three times her size. She's incredibly strong, literally. But anybody standing next to Darsh is just not... It's hard to call them strong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, Mercy is a badass. Um, and uh, over this entire streak of story, Mercy very quickly... Uh, became one of my favorite characters to role play with, play, play with, um, to actually get into a conversation, or be me, be a character, and against her because uh, the young lady that played her did such a good job of giving her such a consistent type of attitude, not cocky but confident. Uh, she was very, very fun to talk to. She was a badass, and she knew she was a badass, and she used it for the right reasons. She never took advantage of it, and I liked that. I liked that mentality of playing the character. So they jump into the fight. But in this fight, it is not Darsh and Mercy who are the most useful. It is actually the two of our characters who are usually the least helpful in actual combat. And that is Artemis and Dandy. Jarek can help, but he's nothing compared to the rest of the PCs. 
the mages have some spells, but there's not much they're going to be able to do without hurting everybody else in, the, in, the, in their allies. But Dandy has been fighting undead with Michael for years. At this point. And they've been doing so with a magical artifact spear that knows pretty much damn near everything about any undead. And while she never heard of an underwater vampire, a vampire is a vampire. And Dandy knows how to fight a vampire. And I, I mean that in all seriousness. Dandy, it's one of those things where it's whenever Michael and Dandy get into a situation with undead, they're always looking at each other and then they go like this. There's always this thing that hangs down that they pull up and they, it snaps on and it's basically a piece of leather that protects their neck. And most of the time they just leave it hanging loose. But she's like, snap. It's like, protect my neck. Alright, this is what we do. And Dandy just lets her hoop pack drop at that point. It's a magical hoop pack. She doesn't have time to screw with it. She drops it and she immediately goes for her two most powerful daggers. One, which is a silver dagger plus four, which is the one she dropped a few minutes ago, which was very ironic when she went down to get that. So I'm like, boy, I'm glad she chose to. And then she goes ahead and she pulls out the fire dagger, which is, I think, a plus three at that point. Both of these are very good, even underwater. And so that's the dagger she needs to go with. Um, Artemis is a cleric of of, of healing. Well, not a cleric of the light. She still has a bunch of punch against undead. And so she immediately uses her turn undead ability. We haven't got to talk about her turn undead ability for a while. She tried using it way back when Michael uh, lost his soul and Menandra got broken. Remember they were fighting Shastra way back then? And that was going on and she was trying to turn the undead, but something more powerful than her, at least that's what they assumed, something powerful that wasn't working. It wasn't until Tevin showed up and he actually had a bit more boost in that regard and was able to blow some of them up. Together they were able to do some damage. That was a while ago. And Artemis is a chunk of levels higher than that. When Artemis whips out her turn undead on a vampire, it's still a vampire. And it's not going to blow up a vampire. At this point, minor undead like skeletons, Artemis can just be like, waha, and they'll just blow up. They will explode. She's that powerful. Mid-range undead have the chance of doing that. High-level undead like a vampire, lich, nightmare, not so much. But it still has a huge effect. And it's strong enough that it actually makes the creature flee temporarily. Which is part of what Turn Undead really is meant to do. It's to make that creature flee. Uh, Not only does it give you time to build up your defenses, eventually it'll wear off and it'll come back. Maybe. And this one did. But it really had an effect. And it weakened it. Because that's another point. Because she's got her blessed spells. And so she starts boosting blessed spells on everybody. And Dandy swims right in to fight the thing. Now, as soon as Artemis does that, sure enough, it swims away very quickly, giving them a bit, a moment or two to prepare for fight and to prepare to protect. And they all swim backwards to get closer to each other because every one of them knew that Artemis just became that creature's number one target. That thing probably doesn't know anything about Dandy. Kender doesn't mean anything to it. But Artemis is a good cleric who just used some pretty strong mojo, which means she's a pretty strong cleric, that's not going to go over well with the vampire. Nor would it with any undead that has considers it a master of, of its type. I'm a godlike creature and <gasps> gotta run away. Who did that to me? You know, that's kind of the thing. It's I don't like that. So when the vampire comes back, it now has a sword. And its sword is a, is a pretty big sword. It's two-handed wielding a sword. It's a two-handed sword, but it's wielding it with one hand. Uh, very strong. And it's faster. It's faster than any of them. So immediately it starts coming in. Darsh and Mercy are on the defensive because it's just trying to get past them to get to Artemis. Jarek 
And the mages are also surrounding Artemis, but they start taking some hits pretty quickly. They're nowhere near capable enough to keep up with the vampire's movements. Um, so the mages start to back off a bit. They start to space themselves out and look for opportunity to cast spells. Uh, Jarek stays in because he's only melee, and if he dies, you know, at least he may be able to save his people if they're successful. Uh, and once again, and Artemis is casting her spells, which help. Uh, but it's at this point that Dandy makes a huge difference. Because Dandy swims in. Um, and by this point in the, in, in the storyline, we have added a kit. Quickly going to mention what a kit is. In 2nd edition, a kit is a specialization. Okay? So let's just say I'm a warrior. Right? I'm a fighter. That's my character. But then I take a kit... That means I'm a giant fighter, or whatever the case may be. Or maybe I'm a, a, a warrior. Technically, a ranger would be like a kit, but maybe I'm a special type of ranger. You know what I mean? Maybe I'm an archer specialist. So it's a kit, which means special pros and cons for me that adds another level to my character. Um, at this point, we had created the hunter kit. And the hunter kit is an undead hunter kit. Hunter is not like Hunter in any other game you've ever seen where it's a ranger or a shooter or got World of Warcraft, none of that. A hunter is an undead undead hunter. And so because of that, with the kit, it was a kit that rogues or fighters could take. Actually, any class could take it. It just affected everybody a little bit different. So Michael is a warrior with a hunter kit and Dandy is a rogue with a hunter kit. Um, and that gives them a lot of perks against undead. At the same time, it sacrifices some of their perks against non-undead. Because a lot of their gear and stuff is now focused on fighting undead. So against things that are powerful but not undead, they might not be as useful. Dandy's strong enough that doesn't matter. She's pretty good all the way around. Uh, Michael is definitely good against undead. He's okay against everybody else. Um, so there's that. But with this, she gets to start using some of her, her actual abilities. She knows about vampires, so she has um, a plus one to initiative in most situations because against undead, she knows what an undead is more likely to do. She's studied them. Okay. It has this ability. You know, if it's something as silly as a zombie, she may have a bigger plus. She's like, listen, it's a zombie. It's going to walk over there at, at me because I'm the loudest person and I'm going to sneak around behind it while it's chasing Darsh and stab it in the head. Something like this, a small perk because it's still intelligent. It may do something out of the normal, but she's more likely to know what it's going to do based on her knowledge and training of fighting it. Um, so it's a kit. Most nobody else had kits. Dandy was the only one, Dandy and Michael were the only ones we added kits to. And pre-existing kits exist in second edition. There's a, I've got a thief's guide, a warrior's guide, a mage guide, a clear's guide. There's tons of kits in there. The hunter one we customize ourselves. Because that's what type of character they turned into. And it became a lot of fun. But for every pro, I give a con. You know, gotta keep it fair. But in this fight, Dandy was pretty, pretty, pretty vicious. So she gets in right close with her daggers. And the thing's stronger than her, but she's quick. Now, the thing's a little bit quicker than a regular vampire. And this threw her off a little bit because they're swimming. Dandy's never really trained in fighting underwater. But she's very agile. So every time it's grabbing at her or trying to do a thing, she's just very like a slippery snake just slipping out of its fingers. Like trying to grab a fish, right? 
conveniently enough as an example, slipping out of her fingers, out of his fingers as he's trying to grab her. Because at one point, uh, the sword ends up getting knocked out of her, out of his hand, and so now he's just using his claws. So he's not going all the way down to the bottom for his sword where the hoopack is. So you're going to, he's attacking, and Dandy Man just keeps slipping out of his grip and just keeps stabbing him with these daggers, going for weak points. And it became so much annoyance, he had to focus on her. He had to stop and put all of his attention on her, which let Darsh and Mercy, the real damage doers in the party, just throw damage at him without having to take that many hits. Um, because they were taking as much damage as they were giving, but Dandy's not. Dandy is just fast and agile. I mean, she's the type of person that, I'm going to hop off this bed, does four flips. She's a gymnast in, in her level of dexterity at this point. Um, she literally is like watching a professional gymnast. She can run and do the flips and the somersaults and the flips and then stand up. And, you know, like and She can do all that stuff. Way more than Michael can. If it wasn't for Menandra, she would outclass Michael in a heartbeat. She's just very quick. And even underwater, she's able to do that. And every time the thing goes to grab her, she's in close. She's like, I'm just stabbing, stabbing. And she keeps going for the heart. And she keeps stabbing him close. She doesn't have a wooden stake. She can't stake him through the heart. She doesn't have that with her. Didn't think she was going to need that. But she is stabbing it with her, with her flame dagger and with her silver dagger. And she's going at it. And so Darsh and Mercy are able to lose several rounds of just heavy damage on it. And Dandy does take some hits in this time. But instead of backing off, she's like, nope, staying in, still going. Slippery, dodging, stabbing, stabbing. And she's just like, and the thing's trying to grab her. She slips down, stomach, stomach, head, head. And she's just going to town with these daggers. When Dandy flips her daggers down, you know she's about to get vicious. And so she's just stabbing the shit out of this vampire. But he does eventually get a grip on her and, of course, comes in to try to bite her and hits that super thick leather and his teeth can't get through. It's at this point that Jarek decides to step in and help. Love NPCs. He comes in and starts slashing at it. And the vampire just backhands him with the other hand. At this point, pulls his teeth out. So he realizes he can't get through the clothing. Backhands Jarek. He gets knocked out starts floating down. You know Darsh has a quiver of holding on his back, right? I've talked about this. It's like a chest of holding, but he keeps his javelins in there. And he can go upside down. They don't fall out. It's magical. That's how a quiver holding is too. So you can do a headstand. Nothing's going to come out. But he reaches to this small arrow looking quiver. And he pulls out a javelin. And he snaps it. Because it's the only thing he's got. It's got a metal tip. And it's got a wooden handle. And he snaps it. And he comes in and he stabs through the back. Through the heart of the vampire with that wooden spear. And it goes through it, and the thing screams, right? Because it's a heart, it's a stake through the heart. It's the same concept. It's a wooden spike through the heart. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't know he was going to do that. Because I knew a stake through the heart is one of the big things you have to do to a vampire. It's usually the easiest way to spike them out. But none of them have any real wooden weapons, right? I hadn't considered the, the javelins. Forgot all about those. Mercy's weapons, metal. His sword's metal. Dandy's hoop hack, but it's a magical item. You break that and you've got some other problems going on. Um, there wasn't really anything wood anybody had. 
Um, but then Darsh is like, my javelins are wood, aren't they? I'm like, they are. They're wood with metal tips. He goes, I take one out and snap it. I'm like, okay. And he rolled and successfully did it. And he just shoves it through the back. He did hurt Dandy a little bit. It did kind of go through her shoulder because the thing was still was still holding on to her at that point. Uh, but it was one of those things you got to do. And he's holding her like this and it comes through his chest and gets her bit in the shoulder. And he screams. And, and if you stab a vampire through the heart, it doesn't necessarily kill it. But it does immobilize it. It can't move at that point. That's why you stab them in the coffin and they just lay there. They can't do anything. The thing is stabbed. It can't move. Right? Darsh whips out another sword because his has already dropped at this point. There's all a whole pile of weapons in the bottom of this thing. He's got his bracelet. He pops out another sword. He beheads the thing after getting Dandy out of the way. Now he tells them... Go down there and get the weapons. <laughs> and then get the pearl. And he and he takes Dandy's fire dagger. She gives it to him. And he s- takes the body and the head and s- keeps them apart. And s- the, the thing's still got the, the spike through her. And swims back up out of the tunnel. Up to where it was dry. And he uses the dagger to burn the thing. Um, it's soaking wet. So it takes a while, obviously. They end up having to go catch up to him, but we'll get back to him in a minute. They go around, swim around. Sure enough, on the other side, there's the pearl kind of sticking in the side of the heart. It's not doing the electrical stuff in this one, but it is kind of throbbing with the heart. And so they go in and they grab it. Mercy does. She's now the strongest one there. And it doesn't hurt her, this situation, but she's able to pop it out. And once again... Everything shakes for just a second. There's a, gr- a low groan, grumbling noise throughout everything, like a city just got upset because it did. They take the pearl, they're swimming with it. Dandy, or Artemis heals Jarek and Dandy. Then Dandy and the mages go down and gather up all the weapons that they can, and they're like, We need to get out of here before more blood stuff comes up. So they go swimming up out of the blood. They're all covered in this wet, bloody stuff. And it's very gross. Um, they open up the chest of holding. They get out more flammable stuff. And that's when they burn the vampire. And they do their best to gather up as much of the... They just have to stay there for a while. They got to burn it to ash. They gather up as much of the ash they can. They, have, there's, they always have some buckets. They put it in buckets. And they, as they're going along, they're trying to spread it in different caves and tunnels the best they can to keep the ash away. There's a chance the vampire still might come back. You never know. Maybe one day. This group has a bad time with vampires. But now they have the second pearls in the chest of holding. They now have to make their way to the stomach. They've used a lot of their stuff. So they seek out a place that they can find to camp for the day and rest. Um, And they're able to find a you know, again, there's always small tunnels that lead to nowhere or, or things. They find a place they, they find is pretty defendable. Um, and they take a watch and they take turns resting. Uh, because they know that the next day, they're going to have to go to the stomach to get the final pearl. And the stomach, Jarek says, is not a fun place to visit. But that's where we'll pick up next time. Because it is 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. (laughs) So, we will finish this story next week. Depending on how long that takes, 
we may get to intro what will lead into the new stuff no one's ever heard before. Um, there are several snippets of things that happen after that adventure, but before the new stuff pops in, that I did write and get to read to them years ago. And they very quickly lead us in the direction of where the next one's going to go. I don't think I will tell any of the new content next week, even if it means i got to stop a little early. But I will read those snippets, which is the last thing they ever heard, the, the players, of this storyline. I would like to get to the point, even if we run long, I would like to read those snippets that set up the future of all of this. And I hope you guys like it. But thank you very much for coming by and hanging out with me today. I had a fun time telling the story. Um, this section of the story was one of those areas where I used more Draven-created creatures than in anywhere else we've ever really played. Um, most of the stories and such, I pulled are variations of classic D&D creatures or creatures from video games or whatever I found. But a lot of the stuff in this adventure was stuff I just really came up with myself. Um, and I was really proud of how well it, it worked and came across. So hopefully it's coming across well in the story. I know a lot of technical science biology talk today. But I appreciate you coming by and telling and let me tell you my story. If you had a good time, whether you're watching this today, tomorrow, or forever from now, please be sure to click that like button. If you're new to the channel, be sure to subscribe. Um, if you'd like to hear more Merge Worlds, if you're relatively new to this, you can also find Merge Worlds on iTunes or Spotify. It's under Merged Worlds, all one word, M-E-R-G-E-D-W-O-R-L-D-S. You can find links to that and a bunch of more Merged Worlds information, pictures of characters, fan art, and such of that on my website, OnlyDraven.com, where you can also find the ODG store. Find yourself some Only Draven Gaming merchandise. You want an ODG shirt and maybe some socks as of tomorrow. If you'd like to check out the site, it'd be awesome if you'd take a look there as well. Um, but thank you so much for coming by. I appreciate this. Merge Worlds is always the favorite thing that becoming a YouTube creator has let me do, is share this story. And I'm very excited and nervous <laughs> to get into the new content. But next week, next week, we're going to have to deal with Eurocladon and a handful, well, a big handful of were sharks. There, they're sharks. I'm sorry, I love that. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and call that a day. If you have any questions about this or any Merge World stuff, join my Discord channel. Uh, link down in the description, or you can go again. It's on my website on the homepage. Come on to the Discord. I would love to chat with you about Merge Worlds on there or anywhere else. All right? Good deal. Thank you all very much for coming. Love you, millions of bunches. And I hope you have yourselves a wonderful week. And I'll see you next Thursday. <laughs>